Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Tim Allen Lawson, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be here. Oh, I appreciate that. Well, the honor's all mine. I'm a huge fan of your work. And I, yeah, it's just, I'm so glad you agreed to do this. I can't wait to pick your brain and kind of figure out how you think. Well, I'm a fan of your podcast, but I'm even a larger fan of your work also. Oh, thanks. Uh, and uh, your sense of color and, and, the way you light your figures. Oh, thanks. That means a lot. I appreciate that. Well, tell me a little bit about your life. Um, Have you always wanted to be an artist? And how did you get into this field? I really, um, I can't say that I always wanted to be. I grew up in a family, uh, you know, working class family. Nobody in my family was involved in the arts. Um, But I had uh, a wonderful junior high art teacher who started to open my eyes uh, to um, drawing, and I guess I always kind of drew. Um, I did coloring books and and trace coloring books, and then kind of add, you know, take one element of one page and make another. Um, hmm. But really, my um, seventh and eighth grade art teacher, a wonderful uh, lady named um, Nancy Buning, was the first to open my eyes. Uh, to kind of the arts and the and the art world and and the creative process, and then I was a competitive swimmer also. So um, I had uh, and we traveled around in uh, AAU in the summertime, and you get to know uh, you know some of the kids from other towns. And there was a wonderful painter named Bob Barlow who uh, took me to uh, the Buffalo Bill. Historic Center in in Cody, Wyoming, and that just that was the first museum I went to when I, I just, it you know just blew my mind. I saw some of the Frederick Remington paintings and and Maynard, they had a couple of Maynard Dixon paintings there, and, and of course I, at that stage of my life I did, I wasn't even aware of what I was looking at, but I uh, I never forgot them. Hmm. How old were you? Well, I was 10 when I went to the first art museum, and then I was, uh, you know, 12 and 13 um, in junior high. And and then the summer of my eighth grade year, right before I went in as a freshman in high school, um, Nancy invited me to have a two-person show with her here on a little gallery on South Main Street in Sheridan, Wyoming. Hmm. And I think I had a dozen, maybe 13 or 14 of the worst drawings and a couple paintings ever created by anybody. But, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of aunts and uncles and par- uh, parents of friends ended up buying them. Uh, so, you know, I went into high school with a, you know, for me, what seemed like a 
a pocket full of cash. And I thought, well, this is the cat's meow. So (laughs) I went into into high school and took every art class and every drawing class that they offered, I think twice, and got through with the bare uh, requirements. And then um, through Bob Barlow, I was introduced to Ned Jacob, who was down in Denver, Colorado in the in the late in the early 80s. And then Ned introduced me to kind of that entire Denver school of Mark Daly and Kang Cho and Hollis Williford, John Zahorik. Um, there are a couple others that in there, Buffalo Kaplinsky that I, that I was never met, but and then Ned really became a mentor of mine for the next 20 years or so. Wow. So what I'm hearing is that you, <laughs> you were a kid who realized you could make money selling paintings. So then you decide to go into it for the money. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's probably, you know, that was, you know, I think it, it, even it, it, more so than the money, I think going into high school, uh, I think most of us, I know I definitely did. You, you kind of gravitate toward anything that you can get a little attention of. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I kind of became known as the kid that could draw or or paint things and people started to notice me for it. So I wanted to do it more, but it really, when I, when I was introduced to Ned Jacob and then, you know, Mark Daly and uh, have, I still have huge, huge appreciation for, for their work kind of that, it was a loosely schooled uh, group in Denver, Colorado at the time. And uh, I was extremely lucky. I've been lucky my whole life, Jeff. Uh, And meeting that group of artists at the time, and they had a great deal of influence on me. And then, you know, from that very first museum I went to in Cody, Wyoming, I've always loved to go to museums. And then occasionally, you know, throughout the last, 45 years or so, there have been key exhibitions that I've seen in, in different parts of the world that, that literally uh, change and alter the course of my life. Of, of uh, And sometimes it's not even uh, a full exhibition. I, I was at the Museum of Fine Arts one time um, on the way to the cafeteria, and I saw a painting called entitled Mirror and Sink by Antonio Lopez Garcia. Mm. And it literally stopped me dead in my tracks. And uh, and then that was the first introduction. I I had no idea. I'd never heard of him before. And when I was introduced to his work, and then a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to actually go over to Madrid and meet him and and spend him in his studio. But his work, being introduced to his work, really changed the way... I, I approach my work. Um, if nothing else, it gave me the freedom that that uh, that I could slow down and and spend more time. You know, you, we see, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Oh yeah. Um, but a lot of times you see, we don't get to see many of his originals in this country. The Museum of Fine Arts in Boston has a few of them and there are a couple of them in museums around the country, but we don't get to see a lot of them. So you see a lot of them in the publications and, you know, you'll see these 10, 12, 15 foot paintings reproduced down onto, you know, an 
image on a page and they, they look photorealism. But when you see the originals, there's a wonderful abstraction to them. Hmm. You know, he'll, have, he'll have markings gritted off left in the paint and he leaves it that way. There'll be on those big cityscapes, there'll be a nail hole in the panel where he's had his uh, perspective string. Hmm. And, and I, I wouldn't have enough uh, backbone to leave that. I'd want to putty it in and paint over it. Same. Yeah. But when I had, to, and I had the chance to, to meet him, I don't speak any Spanish. Um, my cervezas even poorly pronounced, but um, so I had a wonderful interpreter there with me, that man who put the introduction together in the afternoon together. And I, I told um, Antonio Lopez that I realized that he's considered one of the greatest real lives, realists alive today, but I saw a lot of, see a lot of abstraction in his work. And I want to know if that was intentional or if it was just part of the painting process for him. And he was so modest and there's always that awkward time of the translation. <laughs> yeah. And so you'd sit there and, and there's that delay and he would wave his arms and he didn't want to hear anything about being considered one of the greatest realists alive today. But then he got this little smile on his face and it, through the interpretation, it came back that the abstraction is what makes it real. And I hmm. thought, boy, that, that really struck home to me. Hmm. And how much did that influence your painting from there on out? Well, it influenced my painting in the, in the time that, um, you know, I can slow down a lot of times. I think most of us feel like, you know, we get deadlines and we get on this treadmill that we've got to put things out. And so as much as anything, it, it gave me permission in my own work to slow down and put some time and thought into it. And, you know, I, um, I'm a pretty slow methodical painter anyway. Um, but, you know, when you see that his great painting, Grand Via, of that avenue going down the, one of the main streets in Madrid, you know, he worked on for seven years. Seven you know, years? Seven years. He painted the entire thing on location. Holy and, uh, mackerel. And so, and, and then, you know, you think, all right, I spent seven years on this, and it, I'm kind of I'm finished with it. But if you look at through his his work like the next summer or the next spring he moved a couple blocks down the street and started another one that i think he worked five or six years on um Jeez. So that, you know and, and his, his drawing his his um really portraitures of the interiors of his studios and just the the highly observed uh that to sharpen, spend enough time to sharpen your ability to see mm -hmm. uh, has changed uh, changed my work a lot in that, you know, I'll really investigate. Ned Jacob, who was, I mentioned earlier, is one of the the great draftsmen of our time, but he was, a, a you know, he, he could draw extremely quickly, gesture drawings, and they were, you know, perfectly in proportion and stuff. And when I was spending a lot of time with him, you know, I could see him uh, 
in a parade, he could draw a horse and rider complete, fully um, in the time it took that rider and, and horse uh, to move the 40 or 50 feet in a parade. Huh. Uh, and so that's kind of how I grew up drawing in my early early part of my career is I was doing a lot of figurative drawing, I was doing a lot of gestural drawing, um, but I really uh, didn't spend a lot of time really investigating the possibilities of drawing. Hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. And I noticed that you um, that you have some interiors that you've done in graphite that actually reminded me of uh, Antonio Lopez Garcia a little bit. And were those uh, inspired by his work? Well, I think the first the first one where I really um, had, had seen his work just in publications, I somebody gave me a wasp nest and. Um, on a wonderful crab apple branch. And uh, I ended up, I put it in, I nailed it to my easel or the first time I clamped it to my easel and I, I got a full sheet, you know, 30 by 22 inch piece of handmade twin rocker paper. And I, I started it just in graphite and I did it and I wanted to do it, you know, as I wanted to really pay homage to the, the wonderful construction of this, Wasness. It was probably about 14 inches high, mm -hmm. and so I I spent two or three weeks drawing this, you know, sight size directly from life. And the minute I thought I was finished, I thought I I did the first one vertically, and I thought yeah, I just got these wonderful branches, and I so I I just grabbed another sheet of paper and, and set that first drawing aside and started another one. You know, 15 minutes after I finished the first one. Hmm. And I did it a horizontal, and then I used some uh, pastel that I just, I think I'd read somewhere or, or had seen somebody that they told me that pastel is water soluble. And so I just used the tips of, you know, just dry past regular pastel, but I wet the tips of it. And so I added just a little bit of color of the branch and a few of the leaves. And, you know, I worked another couple of weeks and maybe a month on that. And then I ended up doing a third drawing of it. And when I had that third drawing on my, on the easel or in the studio, I had a visitor, um, uh, Guillermo, who is the, the director of the Baron Thiessen Museum in, uh, in Madrid, uh, came with Timothy Standring to the studio. And he mentioned something almost under his breath about uh, Lopez Garcia, and I said, "Excuse me, what'd you just say?" And he said, "Oh, we, we in Madrid, we have uh, a painter, Antonio Lopez Garcia." And then intensity of this drawing reminds me of a little bit of his work, and and I just, it, it, I went, you know, kind of gobsmacked. And he said, "Are you familiar with his work?" And I said, "You know, I, he's one of my heroes," and I said. D you know him. He said he's one of my best friends. I've curated his two major exhibitions in Madrid. Huh. And he said, if you, uh, if you come to Madrid, I'll arrange it for, for you to meet him. And I think I had my plane book before Guillermo left the studio. <laughs> That's awesome. So it really was a, it was a magical time. Uh, it was one of the, one of the great moments of my life to be able to meet.
Yeah, I bet. So tell me, you mentioned some of your mentors, but what about your education? Did you have any formal education, like art schools or university art departments or anything? You know, I grew up in Sheridan, Wyoming, as I said, and uh, I didn't know other than, you know, I met Ned Jacob the, the year uh, I graduated high school, or maybe the year before, I think in 1980. And, but I really didn't, you know, as a career-wise, um, my parents were encouraging, but it was also um, encouragement, but there were no, uh, they weren't going to finance, uh, you know, a vagabond artist. Mm-hmm. And, trying to go. So I went briefly to New Mexico or to Dallas, Texas, uh, to, uh, there were in the early eighties, there were a string of, uh, schools. Uh, I think there was one in Fort Lauderdale. They'll, they were called the fashion and art Institute. And I, there was one in Dallas, Texas. So I went to Dallas for a few, uh, well, I, I lasted a couple months at the school and I thought this isn't for me. And then my watercolor teacher, that if you're really serious about it, there, there are two schools that I would highly recommend. The Art Center College of Design in um, Pasadena and the American Academy of Art in Chicago. And this was in 19, I think, 1983. And so I applied to both of them. And um, a couple of the painters in, da- in Denver had gone to the American Academy. So I was more familiar with that. And, so I ended up going to the American Academy for uh, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, to, you kind of get, or I kind of got used to having that uh, student label on me, and it was a huge safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't really ready to get out into the, you know, kind of the art world. Um, and so I, um, in my travels down the East Coast, and in uh, visiting Old Lyme, Connecticut, where a lot of the American Impressionists started, um, you know, John Twachman, Henry Ward Ranger, uh, Child Hassam, uh, and that whole school of American Impressionists there in, in Midcoast, Connecticut. Um, I found the Lyme Academy of, uh, of Old Lyme, or that I think it was called the Lyme Academy of Fine Art in Old Lyme, Connecticut. Um, and so I went there for a little over a year. And I was, you know, there was a fabulous instructor named Dean Keller there who um, really, and there was a great group, a very small group, but a really incredible group of talented artists there, Tom and Peggy Root uh, and Caleb Stone. And then I had a friend uh, that came with me from Wyoming named Toby Burr. And so we, I spent a year, a little over a year at Old Lyme. Hmm. And that's my, uh, you know, formal education. And I'm surprised. I mean, and you do study realism with these teachers? So study, uh, you know, we, there we are doing almost solid figurative stuff, hmm. uh, figurative drawing and figurative painting, both at the at the American Academy in Chicago. We had a live model in the morning for three hours and a live model in the afternoon for three hours. Hmm. I'm um, surprised in the 80s. I mean, that was like the height of modernism. Yeah. That you were able no, to find a department really, like that. And there really wasn't a, a lot of choices then. I think now, you know, there are all kinds of the ateliers and uh, these schools. And, and you see this wonderful group of, you know, they're, to me, they're kids. They're, you know, mm-hmm. in their 
late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, and their ability to, to draw and paint the figure is just you know, so much more of the traditional teaching um, now than there was, you know, in the, in the mid 80s. Mm-hmm. So when you finished at Lyme, how long did it take you? Well, that's um, more specifically, what did you do next? I mean, what happened between finishing at Lyme and becoming a full-time painter? Well, I was always um, painting full-time. I was still doing a lot of plein air painting. When I was in Old Lyme, I was doing a lot of landscape painting, almost almost exclusively, you know, plein air or, you know, on the spot. Um, and then I, I started to, and I, I felt like I was, I, I was at a, I got to a point where I felt like I, I drew fairly well with all the drawing that I was doing with the, the live, um, you know, drawing from live models. And, um, and I, I thought that I was fairly competent in a, in putting a piece together on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd really never had a, a kind of studio or worked in a studio um, before. I didn't know how to work in a studio. Um, the first couple of years that I went to a studio, you know, all of my panels were uh, kind of limited to the size of uh, the refrigerator or a box freezer that I could put them in to kind of retard the drawing because I was only used to working wet on wet. Hmm. And so I was petrified for paint to dry because I, I didn't know what to do with it afterwards. And now, you know, at this point in my career, it's kind of just the opposite. I can't get the paint to dry fast enough because I do a lot of layered paint and a lot of manipulation of the pigment itself. And, um, to try to create these um, layers in in the final piece. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does any of that make sense? Or oh, absolutely. Yeah, I went through the same thing when I was starting. I I, I guess you could say I learned alla prima first, and I had a teacher that told me once it was terrible advice. It took me literally eight years to get over it. But I had a teacher at the university I attended say, if you have to paint on it after it dries you didn't get it right the first time and you're a lousy painter. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, I didn't have any other experience. So I believed that teacher. I mean, who else? I mean, I have no one else to listen to. Right. And this is of yeah. course, before the internet was huge and YouTube was big. So, um, yeah, I remember eight years later experimenting with, uh, wet on dry and being like, what the heck I've been, I got totally deceived. You know, there's that, yeah. that, that's where the real, to me, that's where it really gets interesting when you start layering oil paint. Oh, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, George Carlson, who did, I'm sure you're familiar with George's mm-hmm. work. And, you know, when I first saw one of George's original canvases, it, it just, it blew my mind. Uh, you know, it, rem, it re, reminded me more of a beautiful tapestry than it did, you know, the typical oil painting that I see. Mm-hmm. I think there was a stretch when George, where George won, I think five or six years consecutive years, where he won the Artist Choice Award, and and at that point George and I had were, you know, I felt extremely honored to be able to call George a friend, and we were fairly close, and still are. I I called him and I said, George, you know, it's congratulations once again, but you know, you're going to have an asterisk. Put, 
putting out your name like Barry Bonds does with his home run record because you're you're sculpting with paint where the rest of us are just painting with it. It's it's unfair. You're cheating. <laughs> That's right. So, but his work, you know, it'd be being introduced to George's work here later in my life, you know, in the last 10 years or so has had a huge impact of mine. And, you know, I see, I see those layers in nature. I see those, the nuances and the subtleties that, that I sure can't get painting wet into wet. Um, Mm -mm. And it's, it's hard to do it even, you know, wet over dry, um, scumbling and, and dragging and layering. But it gives me, um, I think I get a, a tiny bit closer by painting that way. Um, and um, of what I actually see in, from, you know, in reality, in, in nature. Yeah. So speaking of nature, what is it about nature? Because clearly that's some, well, actually, I take that back. I mean, it seems like when I look at your work, I'm looking off to the one side because I have your website up here. But when I look at your work, <clears throat> it seems like you have several focuses. You have architecture, typically houses, which yeah. are so beautiful. I can't wait okay. to talk about those. And then landscape. But I feel like they're related because it's it's all part of the out outside, right? Yeah. And then on occasion, you do interiors. But for the most part, it seems like you're focused on exterior spaces, right? Um, and you, but you said you studied the figure. Well, how did you come to land on that as being your primary focus? You know, for the first you know, the first couple months or half a year after I got out of school, I I tried to do I tried to do figurative stuff, um, figurative pieces, but it always required a model. Mm. A, you know, you'd have a model lined up, you'd have your day lined up, and at the last minute they would call and cancel or they'd show up a half an hour late which then i'm then i'm pissed and you know it's, <laughs> yeah, not it's a, good, a pain in the butt not a good mindset to go in when you're trying to create something mm -hmm. and the, the frustration of that um and you know i had i had painted from nature and from life you know from the very beginning and i never had that disappointment or angst or um really having to rely on some something else to get into the creative process. So I think I just naturally gravitated in my love of outdoors, you know, growing up in Wyoming, I just love being outside. Um, and so that, that love of being outdoors, um, being in nature, um, I think just made it a natural transition for me to go back and, and, and pursue, you know, kind of landscape, uh, you mentioned the houses when I'm when I'm doing a, a house um, or in in a in a sense uh, a tree. If I'm really focused on a tree, I, I approach that. I think like you do, or like most people would, a, a portrait. I'm I'm trying to do a um, a portrait of that specific tree, not just kind of a generic rendering of a cottonwood or a white pine or or something. Um, but having said that, I'm also, I just finished a, a drawing that, that I worked on for a couple of years, um, and I titled it the Becton Statesman that is on the way to, um, I pass it every day to the studio and, and then every afternoon or evening when I'm on the return out to the ranch. And 
um, I was uh, was given permission to walk around the field, and the the piece was done mostly, almost entirely in the studio. But I stop, spend you know half an hour, sometimes an hour, just sitting watching the tree. And I, I even though I considered it being a a full portrait of that tree, I left out one major limb that to, for the painting's sake or the drawing's sake um, was going kind of against the the, the d design on it. So, right. you know, when you're painting a tree that you have that great luxury. I mean, if you're painting a portrait, it's kind of hard to leave, you know, a nose or one eye. Out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't like your nose. It's ugly. I'm gonna leave that out. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, the fine tuning of a, a head. You know, if you're off just a, you know, fraction of an inch, you have a huge distortion. And in a, in a tree, you can be off, you know, a couple inches from where a branch comes out or so. So, I kind of like that. Uh, flexibility where you don't have to be so exact. Right. But I have approach of it. I approach it just like I would if I were still doing portraiture or doing a figurative piece. Yeah, that's for trees though. But one of the things about your houses that are so incredible is they kind of are like a portrait. I recently was uh, at a plein air competition here in Utah and I did a portrait of a house and man, it's not easy. Like you gotta, you gotta think about perspective. If you don't get if you don't get everything right, things just don't come together. Yeah. So, I mean, it you it's almost like painting a portrait when you're doing a house. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it, you know, to me, you know, particularly in New England and where you have those old houses, you know, you'll have houses that are, you know, in the early 18th century built, you know, 1720. Yeah. And they've gone through so many adaptations and, you know, there used to be a, a doorway here and now it's a wall or they're to cut a window in there. They're almost like a, a living thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a different time frame than we are, but they, you know, they have scars and, you know, bruises and uh, it cha they're constantly changing all the time. And I, and I love that about it. And I think about that when I'm working on them. Hmm. Yeah. And it shows in them and we're going to pull those up in a bit. Um, once I, I pick your brain just a, just a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so I want to go back to your childhood again. I had one question I never got to ask you. So did you know you had talent when you were young? I mean, before I, you were introduced to uh, your junior high teacher? I know. And even in junior high, you know, I, I don't, I don't think I was, I wasn't the best drawer. You know, we didn't really didn't paint much. We drew mostly in junior high, but we did a little painting, I guess. I wasn't the best in my class, um, but I was definitely, I, I might've been the, the most interested in it. I don't know. I I never had the chance to, to ask my eighth grade teacher, uh, my junior high teacher, I had her both in seventh and eighth grade, um, why she chose me to have the show with her um, and, that summer of that uh, would have been 1977 um, because I wasn't the best student in the class. Um, and you're not just being modest. No, I really wasn't. Um, but huh. I did have, you know, I've, I've had an, uh, I, I kind of have this uh, addictive personality that I get a hold of something and I just, you know, I can't get enough of it. Um, hmm. Whether it's books or, you know, 
drawing any kind of information, I want to learn more know more about it, more about it, more about it. So I think I was, even though I wasn't the best uh, drawer or painter or artist, I definitely wasn't an artist at the time, but a painter of there, I think I probably had the most interest in it in the class. And um, I don't know, I never had the chance to ask her. She passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but that, I'd like to think maybe that's what she saw in me, um, was my interest in it. And hmm. I think I probably did have more interest in it than anybody else in class. Sounds like you have a lot of grit. I mean, you said you get obsessed with things and it, I imagine you just don't back down until you succeed. Am I right? Well, it, it, I, I don't know if I did. If I ever get to a, a, a part where the success is there, I'll let you know. But I definitely, <laughs> well, you know what I mean? I mean, until you, I mean, in, until well, you've pushed yourself you know, to the limit. Well, you know, I, I don't know if it's, it's me. I always thought, you know, when I was just starting out, because I didn't have a family, none of my parents were in there or grandparents were in the arts. So I really didn't have a, you know, an example set for me. And my fear early on in my career was that I would run out of ideas or uh, inspiration of paint. You know, I kind of mm. get to a point that I wouldn't know what to paint. Um, but I also thought that I would, be able to kind of have a, a pretty good handle on the on the painting, just the application of uh, whether it's drawing or painting. Um, and it now, you know, 42 years later or something, uh, it's almost the exact opposite that's happened. I, I struggle more with my paintings now than I have at any point in my career. And isn't that, uh, isn't that just how it goes? That's the same way I feel. Is. And my biggest problem is, you know, I still get uh, starting a painting is um, one of the, the true enjoyments of life where it has all the possibility in the world. Um, and, and so my problem is to, you know, to try to finish. Now. I'm sitting here in the studio and I, I think I can see, 16 or 18 pieces for my next exhibition in London that that I should be working on trying to finish finish up but I, I get an idea and I want to start another painting while that idea is still kind of that intense um, inspiration is still fresh mm -hmm. so a couple of days doing some thumbnail designs for the composition or might work in a little color in some of the drawings and then I'll block in the painting. And it seems like where I should be working on that for the next two or three or four months to kind of get the meat into it, you know, I'll get a week into it and then I'll be driving into the studio and I'll see something else. And I think, Oh, that is a great idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I come in and that studio and start the drawing process and compositional proportions of canvas and composition all over again and spend the next two or three, four days working that and then blocking another painting. So I was truly a studio full of paintings that are blocked in right now that I, at some point I'm going to have to get back to and, hmm. and try to. I just interviewed Zoe Frank. Are you familiar with her work? Oh yeah. I did love her work. Yeah. Speaking of abstraction, I mean, yeah, she's really got it, got it down. I mean, that combination of abstract and realism. But, um, 
and the wearing work also it, i know it's incredible yeah it was great to interview her but she said the same thing she's like uh, yeah i love to start paintings but i struggle to finish them and that yeah. i'm the i told her but i'm the opposite it's just like i love the finish because i i finally get to see what it's going to look like so <laughs> and then when i and then i'm afraid to approach the next one scared out of my mind <laughs> a blank canvas is the scariest thing for me it's like oh it's, it's blank horrifying canvas is a scary thing for me also but uh there's always that um i guess a blank canvas there's always that possibility you mm -hmm. know that one might succeed um for me even with the best intentions of you know you can spend a lot of time trying to lock in the composition and everything and i get it blocked in and that's an enjoyable part and I'd, I'd say my block in is maybe 15% to what I consider to finish painting, particularly when I want to try to layer the paint and get mm -hmm. some, get some paint on the, on the panel or on the canvas. And then that kind of from 15 to 80% is it's a, a wrestling match. Um, mm -hmm. It's a struggle and the painting, uh, you know, takes on a life of its own and it usually has the upper hand it, it, it for me i feel like a lot of times i'm just getting my butt whooped mm -hmm. um, and then you kind of get through and you know that last 10 15 percent of, of finishing it it does get exciting again mm -hmm. yeah and usually it's when i put all my reference material away and it you know, I, I have a nice comfy uh, chair in my studio and, and I'll just, and, and a lot of times I'll just sit for half an hour, 45 minutes, an, an hour, just looking at the painting and trying to get back to that feeling of what first inspired me, um, how the subject first grabbed me. And mm. then it's just, for me, that finishing part is, is you know, a lot of times it can just be a, a little tiny changing of a, a shape of some element in the painting or adding a little texture to the foreground or something or simplifying an area uh hmm. okay. but i'm not sure i never know when they're really finished i know that's but, yeah the curse of a painter <laughs> you never know when you're done you know yeah. i you mentioned the struggle the fight I, it to me it's like it's like a rocky movie you know those fights he always has at the end where it's he's getting his butt kicked and then yeah. And then at the end, you finally, I mean, it's like, I never feel like I exactly win, but I, at the end, hopefully if it all goes well, I finally figure it out in, in the yeah. last day or two. But the, but the whole process is like going home night after night. Oh my gosh, I suck at painting. Why do I even do this for a living? <laughs> yeah, it's a struggle. It really is. And it, I remember... Uh, it's been, I don't know, maybe six or seven, eight years ago. Um, I, re I was really struggling at one point, and I called George Carlson. And, and have you ever met George? No. He, he has a, he, George is a lot like what his paintings, more, I think more so than his sculptures. The sculptures can be, you know, pretty, they're strong, they have a great deal of energy. But I see George's paintings as being very serene, and he's a very soulful quiet person and I, I felt just like you did and you know i don't know if i'm cut out for this i just you know it's too much of a struggle i'm no good at it and 
he listened to me for probably, you know, a good five full minutes or something. And he said, well, Tim, it sounds to me like you're exactly where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Every, everything worthwhile happens within that struggle. And if I could give you a little advice, he said, if you ever have a piece that just kind of sense, feels like you, it's painting itself, he said, those are the ones you want to kind of set aside because, you know, over time, those probably aren't as good as you think they are at the moment. Yeah. And that's the irony. You said earlier that now you feel like you struggle more than when you were younger. I feel yeah. the same way. And many artists I've talked to who've been painting a while feel the same way. Yeah. And, well, I think, you know, I, I hope over this, you know, because I, I consider myself more of a student than I do a painter or an artist. And I put a big, there's a big difference to me between an artist and a painter. Um, and I, I think there are um, some incredible painters out there that just their some of their work just you know knocks my socks off. But I think um, and there are more and more great painters. And um, you know, one thing I, I think there's a lot of disadvantages about social social media. But one of the great things about it is you know you can get on Instagram and see work from all over the world, and you know painters, artists that I've never heard of before. And they, it, I mean, the, some of the work I see is just jaw-droppingly good. Uh-huh. Um, but I think one of the things to me is um, that artists have an ability to put something of themselves into it. There, there's much more to just going out and, and rendering what's in front of you. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of decisions to be made. Um, and I think if it's done correctly, that um, there's something of the viewer to, um, because I, I view the viewer as an important part of the definition of my definition of art. Um, and I, I, li- I liken it, and if I'm teaching, I'll get, I'll bring up the example of if you've ever had the opportunity to go to a final dress rehearsal at a theater um, that, that nobody in the performance is learning anything brand new at the final dress rehearsal. They all have their steps down. They all know their lines. It, it's a complete performance at that point. But the difference between the final dress rehearsal and opening night, I don't think anybody could argue that they're the, it's the same performance. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's only one thing that separates those two, and that's the audience. But the oh. audience, you know, it brings in a lot of electricity, a lot of, you know, there's a, a connective energy there that makes it, a, a, a comp- even though they're doing the exact same lines and steps and choreographed performance, it's a different thing on opening night than it is on the final dress rehearsal. So how does that apply to painting? Well, it, so it, it, you know, What's one of your favorite paintings of all time? Oh, you put me on the spot. Yeah, I have no idea. You totally put me on the spot. I can't think of one right now. We take a great masterpiece like, you know, Rembrandt's Night Watchman or any. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll tell you the one that I'll tell you one that I literally almost made me cry. And it was uh, and I just mentioned it in another podcast, but it was when I saw Bouguereau's uh, Satyrs and the Nymphs or Satyr and the Nymphs or something like that. So let's let's take that painting there. Well, let's take Bouguereau's yeah. in the Nymph. 
And if we crate that up and put that in storage, um, is it a great work of art? <laughs> That's like, do you hear a tree falling in the forest? Do you don't, or what's that? It's a little, <laughs> yeah, it's it's, a little bit like that. And yeah. I would argue that that great, that great work of art just becomes pigment on on linen or on canvas. Um, it just beca- it's just reduced down to to what it is in reality. It's just paint and pigment. But isn't um, that the weird thing about what we do, though? We're just smearing mud around. And it, and, it, <laughs> and it will stay. It stays in that sense where it's just a painting. Yeah. Well, at some point, somebody removes it from the vault, takes it out of the crate. And then if it if it's done correctly and somebody looks at it, then it's that transaction. So to me, the definition of art isn't necessarily the you know ink on the page or the, the choreographed steps on stage or the notes of music, um, but it it happens within that distance between the viewer and the and the art hanging on the wall or the you know the book you're holding and the great works of literature, or even in music that the, from where the orchestra or the the rock band is playing to the to the thing. And you know if you're okay. rehearsing and there's no audience there, it's a rehearsal. But yeah, it makes sense. Same notes and have the same tempo and everything, but there's an audience there. All of a sudden, that rehearsal becomes a work of art. That piece of music becomes a work of art. Does it matter? that the audience simply matter the audience is there or is it dependent on the reaction of the audience? Well, I think it has to do with a little bit of both. I think, first of all, the, the, who, the creator has to put something of themselves into it mm-hmm. um, or the viewer to, to, you know, get something out of it. And, and for me and, and the difficulty of it, and, and I think I can speak for you also because I see it in your work, uh, is there's a great deal of um, feeling energy that goes into your work, and that is that that's that's felt by the viewer, is sensed by the the, the viewer. Hmm. Um, but there are there are painters out there that just kind of that they go out and kind of render exactly what they see without. Um, prioritizing them or or asking, um, you know, kind of a what's the hierarchy, what's the overall theme of it. Mm-hmm. The paintings can be staggering, um, but I don't think they have a great shelf life. You know, you look at them a second, third time, and then you think hey, it's not as it's not as great as I thought it was. And then there are works of art that you kind of walk by that maybe the first couple times. And then that you'll see something and it grabs your attention. You're like, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. Um, and I didn't see that in the painting the first time. And then, you know, I think a work of art kind of reveals itself over time, that the more you look at it, the more you see it. And um, hmm. so Anton, I'll finish your talk. Work does that, you know, does that for me. I mean, they, yeah. they appear or Emil Carlson. um you know, they appear just kind of a standard still life, but then when you really start to look at them, or, or it, Carlson's landscapes also, the more you look at them, you're like, oh my God, 
you know, look at all those little nuances in there that I, I just didn't see before. So if an artist is dependent on its, on their audience, can an artist really, or can a painter really define themselves as an artist? And the reason I ask that is, is because I've thought a lot about this because one of my heroes when I was in college was Wayne Tebow. If I don't know if you're familiar with my work prior to 2008, but I was a huge, hugely influenced by Wayne Tebow. And um, I, I had the opportunity to meet him in person once, and I was freaking starstruck meeting him. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he said something that blew my mind. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly how he put it, but he says, I don't know if I'm an artist. And I sat out there thinking, what? You don't know if you're an artist. You're Wayne Tebow. You're in art history books for crying out loud. And then he expounded on it, and I can't remember exactly what he'd said, but I left there. It kind of changed my life in a way because I've always had that attitude since. And that it's like our audience almost has to tell us or define whether or not we're an artist. History has to define whether or not we're an artist in a way. At least that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I think most historian historians think that you know it's about fifty years after, um, you know, our life when when everything's sorted out. Um, yeah, I mean, do we still it, matter in fifty years? Yeah, or are we? And I think, yeah, and I think all we can do is is creative individuals is you know be true to yourself um, and. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned Zoe Frank earlier. I mean, you know, I was familiar with her her work 10, 10 12 years ago through a, a gallery uh, in Maine called Gary Haynes. And you know, her work was nothing like it is today. Hmm. You could see a little tiny bits of it, um, but what she's doing now is so exciting. And and I don't know anybody that is doing what what she's doing right now. Mm -hmm. You know, she's followed her interest, her, you know, a lot of it is intuition as much as anything. Mm -hmm. um, it, but if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you know, I, to this point, to this day, I still have no idea what's going to inspire me for my next painting. Mm. Um, it can, you know, it can be a scene that I've passed a couple hundred times and then one day, uh, you know, whether it's the you're just there at a, the right time or the right light. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the clarity and the openness of, of your mind um, that something connects. Um, and, you know, I, I used to when I was younger, I used to drive around and drive around and drive around looking for, you know, going <laughs> that's what light. I still do. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> oh, man. Um. But now, but, now it comes easier. I'm assuming now. Now things are just. The inspiration comes easier because I, I can. You know, a lot of times I don't, I don't, I do very little plenary painting anymore. I, I have kind of designed these color charts that I'll take out in the field, and instead of, you know, worrying about the relationships over, you know, two two and a half hour time, I'm much more interested in the that relationships over a, you know five, 10 minute window. And I can't paint that quickly, but I can observe and take notes and write thoughts down of what the, what my feelings are at the time. 
And then, you know, almost all my work now is done in the studio. And um, so I, I, I use photographic reference, um, but I use my color charts. Um, and, and a lot of it for me is um, forgetting what was out there in reality and trying to create a piece that has that more of the feeling of what was out there than what was really there. Yeah. That's Does the that thing sense? about your work. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing about your work that I love so much. And I, I was just, I was actually thinking about you one day when I was driving home from somewhere and I saw this incredible sunset and I shot it with my cell phone and it's got, it's got HDR on it. I, the iPhone 13, it's an incredible camera. It's amazing. But even with the HDR, it didn't quite capture the relationship between the sky and the foreground. You know, the sky was a little bit almost too bright, right? Yeah. And and you've got, and I know you're working from photos because I know, because I'm looking in your studio right now, I can tell you're in a studio, right? But your work looks like it's not, it looks like it's from life. So I want to know about these color studies. How, how much information are you collecting and how much do you need in order to take a photograph that doesn't have the same dynamic range and turn it into a uh, really convincing representation of real life? Well, it, these color charts that I have are, um, they're designed where, you know, each major uh, color that I have on my palette, and I have a, I have a fairly large palette. I think there are 14 colors that I kind of say is my normal palette. But then I'm, you know, I said I've had this addicted personality, and, you know, I'm a junkie in an art store. I mean, I'll go into Vasari in New York or, or, you know, Dick Blick or just going through a catalog and saying, oh, God, that's it. It sounds like a really cool color just by the name of it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'll, I'll order a tube or sometimes two tubes of paint and I'll kind of mix that, introduce that new color to the colors that I'm familiar with in my palette. And these color charts work where they're, they're based on just two color mixtures and then white to tint it out. And so with just those two colors, you get this, these wonderful subtleties that, you know, I wouldn't, I think I could spend a lot of time in this, in the painting and I'd never, um, you know, for a blue, for an example, when I'm out in plein air, when I was doing a lot of plein air work, I kind of look and I think, all right, is that sky, is that lean more toward ultramarine or is that more toward cobalt or it, maybe perhaps cerulean and but on these color charts if you mix cobalt and cerulean you get a completely different blue than you could you know nudging either one of those and so hmm. it's never the the right color i don't you know i don't have these charts where you go out and say that's exactly the color i'm seeing but when i'm back in the studio because there are only two colors in white you can mix, I can, I can mix those, those proportions perfectly. Now, in, in an ideal world, I do all of my mixtures like that. And then you'd have really clean color because you, you can't create a muddy color with just mixing two colors together. Yeah. But when you say two colors, do you mean two primary colors? No, it'd just be any color. Like, you know, e it, even browns, have, even browns. Oh, um, okay. You know, if you, if you mix, I have a wonderful, uh, Old Holland makes a color called warm sepia X3. 
through. It's just one of my favorite colors. Mm-hmm. Um, if you mix that with with burnt umber, you'll get a different brown than either, you know, kind of the burnt umber range will give you or the warm sepia brand. So a lot of times I'll mix colors like that together. Um, and are you getting then, colors you can't mix with just red, blue, and yellow? I mean, are you, are you hitting? Oh, yeah. You are. Yeah. It, yeah. I, or at least I think I am. Uh, okay, you're totally you're totally changing my attitude here. I've always had I've always had this attitude. Huh, who needs color charts? But now, now you're starting to change my mind. Maybe I should experiment with this. I've never in my entire career done a color chart. So you know, and I, I did them in school. We were forced to do them in school, but nobody told you the value of it. And no one's told different. me. You're just barely telling me. This is great stuff. Uh, well, here, dude, I'll grab one here. Okay. So do you take these into the field and then say, and then say, okay, in the foreground, I see color A, B, and C. In the, in the yeah, sky, so, I see color C, D, and F. So, you know, in, in the, so this is one, this is a, one of a, a Vasari color called uh, Cypress Umber D. And so on this, and, and they're all this size because I have a little portfolio that I take them out in the field with. And you really. I, it's hard to see, but. Yeah, you kind of you don't get to see the full range of them. But no. So this is just right out of the tube mixed down with white. Throw them, on then, your, throw them near your canvas where they're in the light more. Even though it's farther away, maybe it'll help. Nah, it's too so far. That's yeah, too far. Yeah. yeah. That's all right. Anyway, we get an idea. Then, but it's, you know, so each one, like this is for yellow ochre. Oh, that's um, much easier to see. Yeah. And then in a, a, So um, yellow ochre and everything else on your palette? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. So this is just yellow ochre right here on the, on the you know, what would be on the left-hand side. Okay. It's just straight yellow ochre out, and then it's mixed with yellow ochre, and alizarin sits on the, just to the right. I kind of have the Rubens palette layout. And then, and only yellow ochre and alizarin in this next one. So why don't I and see then, the actual just alizarin on there? Well, because then that would be on my alizarin chart. So, you know, I want everything on my yellow ochre chart to stay within yellow ochre. So the mixture between yellow ochre and alizarin on the yellow ochre chart is different than it would be alizarin and yellow ochre on the alizarin chart. Oh, so, okay. So when you mix on the yellow ochre chart, when you mix yellow ochre with alizarin, what is your first percentage of alizarin? Well, it, it, you really can't go. It's just kind of by I mean, feel. Well, I know, but you know, estimating. If you, if you do a percentage, you know, if you do 50% alizarin and 50% yellow ochre, you're in a, it's not going to look like there's any yellow ochre in there because the lizard is such a, it has much more tinning strength. Oh, so you're okay. All right. Just so I understand. So you have yellow ochre on the top left corner. The next one is a, just an average, a good mixture that feels right between yellow ochre and a lizard. And then you go down adding white. Yeah. And then red, orange, you know, yellow, deep, yellow, medium, and then into the blues and into the browns. See, I thought so. you were going yellow ochre and then adding a little bit of yellow alizarin or a little bit of alizarin, a little more alizarin, a little more alizarin. That's what I thought you were doing. Okay. No, I do have a, in the studio in Maine, I do have a couple charts 
you know, they, and again, this just gives you kind of an example of the range of a color. But okay. if you really want to get into it, you could do that where you could put, you could take two colors, you could take yellow ochre and alizarin and put yellow ochre on the right side, alizarin on the left side, and then mix to the middle. Then you would have a, a you know, a full range of what those two colors could do together. Okay. And I, I, and I have a, I do have a couple panels where I've taken cadmium, I'm sorry, cobalt and cadmium orange, and, you know, cobalt on the right, cadmium orange on the left, try to mix a neutral gray right in the middle and then nudge each one of them back out to the pure color. So and, and it gives you an, it gives you a stunningly beautiful board or chart with just two colors in white. Hmm. So when did you discover that you needed this? Maybe need is the wrong word. When did you discover the value in this? Um, I discovered the value in it when I was really um, out in the field and I was just, it became really frustrated, um, you know, trying to mix paint. You say that, you know, that last 10 minutes before the sun sets or, which I think is even more difficult, the following 10 minutes after the sun sets or before the sun rises in the morning where that the sky particularly, but as a result, everything else in the landscape is um, related to that changing sky color. And it just, mm. it was a frustration. I always felt like I was, you know, like chasing my tail around. So you're out on and a then, sunset painting a landscape on, in plain air you're chasing this violet or whatever color in the sky. And then you go home and realize, wait a minute, if I figure out all the violets ahead of time, then I can know it in that. Cause I've only got a few minutes. Then I, then yeah. I can just refer to that formula on location. So I might, you know, it might have a, um, my cobalt violet chart out in the field or, or, you know, Sure, like that. And if I'm watching that sunset or right after it's set, you've got that open glow. Um, I can glance down and then, you know, a few, three, five, eight seconds, I can find a combination of two colors, cobalt violet and something else. You know, I think a cobalt violet because it's so soft and you create so many wonderful grays with it. Um, and then I can, I can glance down and it might be, you know, Cobalt violet and terra vert, which you know, I would never think of that combination in my head um, if I'm in the studio or if I'm in the field. I just wouldn't think of that. But because on the chart I have it, it's just, it creates this wonderful kind of neutral, vibrating gray, and there's no there's no muddiness to it because it's just two colors. And then I can glance down, or it might be cobalt and, you know, cadmium lemon, lemon yellow. Um, and I can mm. glance down and see what, you know, roughly what value it is. And so I can make a note, you know, cobalt violet plus CLE, cadmium lemon yellow or CLY number six on my value chart. And that will never be the exact color. But when I get back in the studio, I trust my charts uh, much more than I do the photograph and like the photograph you were, you mentioned, you know, just didn't have this thing. So that gets me, you know, that at least gets me a, a kind of a finger hold 
when I'm in the studio, when I'm blocking in the painting or starting. Yeah. And then the other, the other way I use them is um, I'll lay three or four or five charts out on the field, uh, on the just my studio floor. And I think, okay, this, this chart works really well with, with this, the colors on this chart. And that's how I'll key a lot of my paintings. This is so um, awesome. I never would have thought to do this stuff. Um, and then, of course, when I'm, you know, in the painting process, I, I, I'm, I'm lazy and, and I, you know, I start to mix the third or fourth color and, um, and then, it, and that's where I think the, the struggle really starts. Right. Yeah. You're, yeah, you start chasing it. So when you're in the field, you mentioned you have the charts with you, but are you doing a plein air study and referring to those or are you just taking written notes? A lot of times I'll do a, a, just a, a, you know, composition, a thumbnail drawing. A drawing. And then I'll, okay. Uh, so, and then I'll make little color call outs with that, those notations. And then other times, depending on the situation, um, I will, I'll just write down feelings and then have some notations of that, that kind of combination that I mentioned earlier. But what about value? How do you figure? How do you how do you record the value without a study? A lot of times I'll I'll go back, um, you know, and, and do a a more um, developed value study, mm. um, or went back in the studio when I'm really playing around because um, I'll play around a lot with the compositions back in the studio when I'm removed uh, from the subject matter, um, where I feel like it. If I remove myself from the subject matter, the essence of the of the scene or the subject stays with me longer than all of the, you know, than the actuality of the scene. And so then, then I do a number of compositional drawings. I'll change the uh, portion of the of the pan of the the canvas or the panels. I'll try a vertical or a long horizontal or one that's more rectangular, square. And, and, and again, it's just kind of the feeling that I had, but I'm, when I'm out in the field. I have a tendency to, to draw more of what's there. When I'm back in the studio away from it, I can remember my feeling of what was important to me, but if, you know, there's a telephone pole right in the middle of it and I don't feel that it works. I, it's much easier for me to take that out when I'm not right there. I have a tendency when I'm out in the field and I'm drawing and the telephone pole's right there and I think, eh, I should move that off to the side. It seems to sneak right back into where it is in reality. Yeah, I have the same issue and I've always attributed it to my lack of time. It's like, I, I feel like I don't have time to be precise and creative at the same, in the same hour and a half. So I tend to be more and literal too. The plein air work I do now is is gotten really abbreviated. Where a lot of times I'll just put color color mixtures right next to each other, and not and with no attention to um, detail or shapes. Just those color relationships, as you know, and um, and I see in your work. When, you know, if you have a color and you think it's the exact color, and then you put a color next to it. It's that relationship between the two colors that's more important than either one of the colors. Right. And so, and that's a lot of time when I'm in the studio, 
it's a lot of the frustration and a lot of work. You think you have something pretty well established and then you put a color next to it and that relationship changes. And then, you know, you start changing everything else around it. And by the time you get back, <laughs> it's a whole new painting. So then you have to change everything again. Um, yeah. You know, I would took a workshop with Brian Mark Taylor. Are you familiar with his work? No, I Oh, you yeah, should look him not... up. He's a great, he's a great um, landscape painter, but, and he also does sort of this fantasy sort of uh, made up landscape. Like anyway, you have to check him out. He's a good but painter. What was, what was, Jeff, what was his name again? Brian Mark Taylor. I actually interviewed oh, yeah, him. I actually do know him. He made a great little Peshad box. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Strata. Yeah. yeah that, that's him. It, it's what I use when I'm when I do when I'm out in the field. It's oh okay yeah 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 he's a he's a sharp guy. I do, I am familiar with his work. Yeah. Well, I took a workshop from him many years ago, and see, I'm a I'm so thick headed because when you're talking about these color charts, it reminds me of this one thing I learned. I mean, I learned a lot from him, but this one thing I learned from him it reminded me of, and this I had cad red light on my palette, and um, I also had vermilion because he asked me to bring vermilion. But he showed me how if you mix cad red light with ultramarine blue, it makes this sort of cruddy violet that's got no chroma. But if you mix vermilion with ultramarine blue, it makes this beautiful violet. But cad red and vermilion sitting next to each other on the palette, they almost look identical. You can hardly tell them apart. It seems like it defies science, like it defies, you know, reality. But it, that's how it works. So I should have concluded from that, well, maybe I should do this with all my colors and figure out what can and can't be done. But no, I just now I just carried that one nugget for 10 years. So I appreciate all of this information for my thick skull. Well, and it, besides that, you know, I have mine taped off and stuff, but they're, they're just so much fun to do. I mean, Are they really? I got I to try this. There's nothing more fun to me than just mixing paint. Just really plain. um and then, you know they take a little time because i i grid them off and measure them off and and tape them with you know um because i know i'm going to i'm, I'm going to use them a lot so i want them to be you know consistent right um but it's i look at it they, they're they've become my visual dictionary and i use it i think much like an author would uh, the English dictionary. And how many of these do you have? It would seem with 14 colors, you would have a ton of them. Uh, I, I probably have, if I had to guess, maybe 35. I don't, maybe not 40 yet, but as I say, you know, I'd, I'll see a color it, that a cool name, you know, video blue. I think, wow, that sounds like a great color. And then, you know, and I have used it a couple of times, but it's I haven't used it much because it just doesn't fit for for the most part. There's more. Um, it doesn't mesh necessarily with the colors that that it, I think are you know, what I'm most familiar with in my strength. But I wouldn't know that um, unless I had, had made one of these charts and see how it works. I mean, mm. I had dioxazine mauve on my palette for a long time and I still think it's a pretty neat color but it it has so much strength and when I did these colors um it cobalt violet was one of the I think God, that just sounds like a great color 
-hmm. So I got co-pilot and and made a chart, and it, I thought, oh my god, this this color is you know so much more me than dioxazine mauve is because of the subtleties and the nuances that you know draws me to so much of the work that I admire, um, either contemporary or historic paintings. Um, and the range of cobalt violet is, you know, it's just such a subtler color than dioxazine mauve. And mm. so I took, and I, and I had dioxazine mauve on my palette for, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't know. Sure. I don't use that color. Yeah. But, you know, I had it on my palette for, for probably 12 or 15, maybe even 18 years. Hmm. But once I made one of these, the color chart with cobalt violet, it just resonated with me much more. And every once in a while I'll, I'll reach and there'll be a gray that I've, I had mixed with dioxazine mob that, you know, so I still have a tube of it laying around, but mm. I use cobalt violet much more. So I'm confused though, because 40 doesn't seem like very many. If you've got 14 colors and that would be 14 times 14, isn't that like 196? Well, no, because... So each color, you know, each chart is like, this is my, um, let's see if we can see the whole chart. This is my yellow ochre chart. So, you know, it has all these mixtures on it. And then I have one for each one of these rows, the vertical rows is a color. Oh, so you have each color mixed with each other color. So technically you would only need 14 then. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. That makes sense. So 40, again, 40s, 40s with with a lot of extra colors. Then you've you've yeah. done with other colors that aren't even on your palette. Yeah, or not the standard colors on my palette. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I was going back to that whole idea of a whole chart with two colors again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, let's. This is a. I think a good place to start your work. Let's check out some of your your art here. All right, I had mentioned your house paintings, and I'm going to start with those because they kind of blow my mind. One of the things that I just love about your work is the moodiness of it. I mean, you have some paintings. I'm going to go back here and compare it. Like, take a good look for the audience. Take a good look at these subtle... It's minimal color. It looks like a limited palette almost. And then it, you compare that to, say, this one or this one that are very high chroma. That's the one thing I notice about your work is you've just got this huge, you have this harmony and this uh, consistency from piece to piece. And at the same time, you're, it's, you're broad in, in your palette on your paintings. Well, thank you. It's that, that, that first piece you, you brought up uh, I think it was titled Winter's Walk, uh, that one. Um, that's, uh, I'm about five feet from my, uh, I have a, this is our place in Maine. Um, and I'm about five feet from the front step of my studio, which is detached from the house, walking back toward the house. Mm. And so um, when my wife and I moved there, we had two children at the time, our two oldest, Rosie and Nat. We um, 
I had, you know, grew up in the West. I traveled quite a bit, but I had no idea what it took to create a New England farm. And so um, we built the house and the studio at the same time. And it was just on a, you know, scarred, you know, leveled piece of uh, dirt and rocks. And coming from the West, you know, it never dawned on me that we bought property in Rockland and the next town over is Rockport, or we bought property in Rockport and the next, our neighboring town is Rockland that there might be a few rocks and, you know, that don't exist in Wyoming. But um, so we we built a house and studio and then I did all the gardening. And, and so, you know, everything in, that you can see in this piece, I either planted or built or, uh, help design. I didn't build the house, but I built the picket fence and hmm. cut all the firewood and planted all the plants in the garden. So wow. this is just a regular commute. I think there's another one on the- on Do you still own select. this home? Yeah, yes, we do. So do um, you, do you, but you live in Wyoming as well. So you go back and forth? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Um, so, so there's one farther down, I think uh, that's the same. It's a big- the bigger piece called the welcoming committee. Oh my this gosh, your work is mind blowing. Um, that one, you just had your finger on it. It's in the third row. Up. Oh, right here. Uh, that's the same exact scene. Um, oh gosh. I'm standing actually on my, on my, uh, the step of my studio looking back. And this is called the welcoming committee where we had the little cute dog. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my dog. And then if you look closely, uh, our son that is 23 now is there's a little silhouette of him standing in the door. Um, oh yeah. For, um, God, it makes me kind of nauseated looking at this. I'm like, cause I'm so depressed. It's so depressing. I don't know how you do it. It's just, it's so convincing and it's so representative of real life and yet so much better. I've never seen a photo that beautiful. So thank you. You can see that the house we originally had was kind of this off uh, kind of muted yellow. And then in the, that first one we saw, um, the garden has grown up quite a bit more and we've repainted the house white to um, in New England, you've got to, it seems like you have to paint your house every five years. It's just that. Yeah, the moisture, it's rough. But anyway. Yeah, I love that you just, as a side note, I love that you built an old style house out there. That's really cool. Yeah. Um. Uh, all right, let that me, I wanted to point out something good. else I saw right here. This is that one you were talking about earlier, right? Yes, this was the third and final one uh, of that of that wasp nest that I had mentioned yeah. earlier. Yeah, I should have pulled that up earlier. Um, that's beautiful. I can't, so I calculated when you were talking, you said three weeks, approximately three weeks each. So you put in almost two and a half, about two and a half months on just this project. Yeah, it's probably close to closer to three or a little over three months on the on, for the three drawing. Did yeah. at any point your wife come in and say, shouldn't you be making money? Or did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, I'd sold all three of those. So No, I know, figured I, you did. But I mean, but, I would have been nervous to go to just sit there and draw bee, you know, beehives for th for three months. That's awesome. 
So. <laughs> yeah, here's one I saw on Instagram re- recently that really caught my eye. Is this in Wyoming? This is in Maine. This is up in Union, Maine. And uh, I was with a friend of mine named Don Demers, who's a, who uh, is a fabulous you know, painter. And, and, and Don, is, he's, a, he's a great he what he can do plein air it just blows my mind i mean he can have fully finished paintings on the spot and they're they're fairly tight they're not loosely painted and it, the other thing he can he can talk nonstop while he's painting in a full conversation mm-hmm. and it, when i start to paint i'm i might as well be mute i mean i mumble and but when i'm teaching a <laughs> word mumble and drool and <laughs> I'm talking, you know, coherently, but about one out of every six words is audible. And the rest is going on in my mind. I just forget to say them. So people are standing there like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> so I was out with uh, Don and I were on this location and I had just sat, we'd just gotten there and I got a phone call and I just started a thumbnail. I had my like two legs of my easel set up. And I had to go back to the house, which is about eight, nine miles away. And to unload some stuff, I had a delivery coming. And so by the time I got everything unloaded and got back, Don had, you know, he was just about finished with his painting. So I had just enough time to to kind of make some notes, uh, do a thumbnail sketch. And then I did this uh, in the studio from it. Mm. And it, what really struck me was that the light moving from the left side of the canvas as a cross. There were a lot of times I'll, I'll expand that field of vision um, where the trees in that upper left-hand corner are more backlit or partially lit than they were in reality. You know, mm-hmm. they'd be that another hundred feet out of the picture plane, but I'll bring that in. And then as you go from left to right, I'll enhance those and made those trees is almost totally front lit where I kind of I'll condense that um, or I'll expand that field of, of vision going, you know, um, I call it lateral perspective instead of aerial perspective. Wait, wait, can you explain that again? I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. I'm sure so if we're the... just looking at, at this, at this scene, the yeah. way I have it, we really, you don't get to see a lot of that, but if I, if you turn your head and go, you know, the light's coming from my left side. Right. And if you turn your head and, and go maybe 10 degrees outside of the picture plane, all those trees um, become more, you know, backlit or... Um, oh, right, lit. right. Right, because you're and essentially then, seeing a half circle if you turn your head. Right. Right. And so a lot of times I'll expand my picture plane and kind of bring what's 10 to 15 degrees outside of the, my viewing plane of what I have on my canvas. And I'll bring certain elements of that in to kind of try to enhance the feeling of light. You want, so you, whoa, okay, that's bizarre. I have never heard of that. Did you kind of come up with that on your own? Well, you know, I think a lot of times when I'm, when I'm teaching or a workshop, I mean, most painters, um, unless they're really rank beginners, most people, most painters understand aerial perspective. Right. But I think a lot of, a lot of painters, even some advanced painters don't, they don't pay the attention, 
enough attention, in my opinion, to what, and I don't know what, if there's a term, I call it lateral perspective of that, you know, if we do a 180 degree outside, the difference in that span of 180 degrees is vastly different um, mm -hmm. from you know, backlit to frontlit. And so I'm always aware of that. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll bring that, I'll exaggerate that and bring that into the, into the painting. And it, the, so this the is main... a relatively closely cropped vision and there, there wouldn't be a lot of difference in those background trees. Um, but I intentionally made that upper left-hand corner more backlit. They're more violet. The light's kind of coming through and they're slightly darker. And then as we go from the left corner to the, to the right side of the canvas, made them more front oh my than they gosh were i've never hoping heard to, of that hoping to enhance that sense of sunlight and and i mean is that okay so this that's one of the things about your paintings that kind of blows my mind is how real the light is it's like when you're looking at a sunny painting and it's almost like you can feel the heat coming from the painting mm -hmm. it's that convincing would you say that that is part of the reason that you're able to capture this feeling of light? I think that helps. Um, it, 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 I'd like to think of it, it that it helps. You know, it's everything that we that we do is uh, it's an illusion. I mean, we're trying to create this, you know, depth of a, a three degree, even in an, an interior or still life. On a on a relatively flat surface, I guess it's not perfectly flat because we have the weave of a, the the depth of the canvas. But for most, for argument's sense, it, we're we're trying to create illusion on a flat surface, right? And so we can't we can't paint exactly what we see, what we see because um, what we're seeing is a you know three dimensional you know big, you know, wide open space. And so you have to paint um, more of the feeling of what you're doing. So I think by being aware of that lateral perspective um, will help landscapes, whether you, whether it's just a foreground field where, you know, it's part of it's half lit or back lit, and then you come around to more, you know, quarter lip on the front lip side, or you could push it all the way to the, you know, front lip. So these trees on the corner, they might actually be side lit, but what you're doing is you're looking off to the left and saying, oh, the ones on the left, because they're on that curve based on, you know, yeah. my neck swiveling, right? Um, they're more backlit. So I'm going to bring the lighting from the trees on the left and bring them into the picture frame. Yes. So you're, you're, you're painting the objects within your field of view, but you're expanding your field of view for lighting. I'm expanding my field of vision for, you know, that for the, to enhance that, hopefully enhance that lighting. It's crazy. So if you go to that, that, uh, those are all white pine. If you, you had your uh, pointer on that white pine on the edge of the canvas. Yeah. And then the ones right behind the, the, the farmhouse. Oh, right. Here. Yeah. Here. They're totally different. If, those, you know, so the ones on the edge of the canvas are, you know, three-quarter backlit. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're hardly and then the ones behind the house are kind of half and half. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the way they would, but those trees on the edge of the canvas would be, you know, 10 degrees outside of the picture plane. Right. But I just, you know, I used that to kind of enhance and then... Um, what? I don't understand how you came up with that. That's, that's wild. That's the first I've ever heard of anything like that. Can you show that to me in another painting? Um... Yeah, let's see. This one, the light is coming from the right side. Um, and so the, the little sagebrush in the foreground in the lower right-hand corner, those uh, those little accents would probably be, you know, five, um, because this is, this is primarily a, um, you know, the sun's kind of behind my right shoulder. Right. So those little accents, the shadow side of that sagebrush in the lower right-hand corner of that would probably be, you know, five degrees outside the picture plane. Oh. And then there would be, there would be a few more accents on the sagebrush over on the left-hand side, a little shadow that I've eliminated or taken sagebrush that might be, you know, 10 to 10 degrees outside the picture plane where it's almost totally front lit to try to enhance that. And some of that is um, a conscious feeling or a conscious decision. Others is just a feeling. I didn't want to have any really sharp accents in the, in the, in the foreground um, that would compete or take away from the shadow side of that, of those sandstone rocks. I want to look at this one again, small, because it's amazing to me how refined it looks when it's small. And like yeah. you talk about this looks like sagebrush and looks like sagebrush. But then when you look closely at it, there's just a few marks. They're just little strokes, just... which, you know, we all know as painters, but you know, you kind of geek out over that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, okay. So here's another one. I was driving home from California and I saw a scene similar to this and I could not capture it. Like I said before, with my camera, it's just, the lighting is so sophisticated in that. Can you tell me a little bit about how you created this one? Well, the, you know, clouds, I'm kind of envious of, of people who paint clouds really well. Um, this one I struggle with and struggle with and struggle with. Um, I think they're incredible. They're, um, but, you know, and a lot of it is just the, the tonality that the whole basis of this was trying to, the clouds were really moving quickly and to mm. try to, to capture that movement in the, in the clouds. And I, I think I titled this cloud dance because they really were dancing against the kind of static um stationary um everything in the foreground and everything on the ground was solid and and non-moving everything in the sky was almost liquid and you know the wind was blowing quite hard Mm -hmm. i struggled with this thing for about six months and um i ended up cutting five inches off the bottom of my panel um wait i'm confused because i the clouds are moving but you worked on it for six months did you keep going back Oh, the, the layering and the, and the, the, I bet the paint was 
three-eighths of an inch thick on, on some of this was a studio piece. You know, oh, okay. Almost, uh, okay. So you just wanted the feeling of moving, but your reference obviously yeah. wasn't moving. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an incredible sense of light. Um, yeah. Same with, oh gosh, man, I don't know how you do this. So there was one that you had done that I'm going to go, I think it's up at the top. Um, where you, oh no, this is it right here where I was noticing that's not that big of a painting. It's three feet, a little over three by two feet. Yeah. Um, but you have an incredible level of detail on the paneling or what do you call this? And I, I can't remember what you call this. I grew up in the East. Priorities. What's that? The priorities is the title of it. Which, no, but what do you call the paneling on a house like this? Uh, oh, just a, a clabbered. Uh, yeah, clabbered. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I even grew up in a house like this. I don't remember what it's called. Um, yeah, but the detail on that is unbelievable. This this painting, this house struck me. It, it has so many different aspects of architecture. None of them, you know, are natural or, or go inside. Um, you know, it's got some stained glass windows, um, you know, kind of Art Nouveau. Oh, bizarre. Um, it's got that, you know, the, the kind of the frilly uh, grill work of a Victorian house on a little bit on the porch and up in the eave. Uh, they had a weird roof line. And, and the house, the light struck me on the house, you know, obviously in need of a paint job it's built it's in central texas so it's, you know there's no foundation it's just built on blocks but the skirting has come off you know the the lath skirting and it just the house is in need of repair but they have their satellite dish I know. guaranteeing <laughs> order and i was explaining this painting to my father-in-law he was always curious of what i was working on i was telling him i'm I just I called him Pop, and I said, you know, it's just, it, it's, I'm fascinated by it. The porch looks like it could fall off the from the front of the house or fall away from the front of the house at any minute. It's it's listing, it's at a weird angle. And I said, but they had uh, their satellite dishes there. And I said, so you know what their priorities are? And I know. He's, That's what That's I was thinking. And I said, what? And he said, priorities. And I thought, you're right. So he gets credit for titling that one. Uh, I'm glad you thought that because I often think that when I see houses like this, I'm like, you know, if you put away that $50 a month and the hundreds of hours a month you watch the TV, <laughs> buy some sheets exactly of plywood and fix your house, man. <laughs> exactly. Jeez yeah. Louise. Anyway, I shouldn't so, be so judgmental. You know, Jeff, if you let go back to that one, this is another thing that um, okay. And you know, living in Midcoast, Maine, in in what they call Wyeth country, um, this is something that I've I've learned from looking at Andrew Wyeth's work a great deal. Is you know, I intentionally darken the foreground, which is just kind of a dry stubble grass. Really, couldn't even call it a lawn, but Andrew Wyeth will paint a. a foreground, you know, that's four or five values darker than it ever could be in reality. Mm. Um, but he does it to enhance that that sense of sunlight on the house. It's because the, 
the spectrum of light is far greater than the spectrum of pigment uh, that we use with to try to depict light. And so since we can't copy um, you know, sunlight on Earth verbatim, we have to make choices. And it's what I, you know, living in Maine for the number of years that I have, it's what I see the people who try to copy Wyeth, um, they miss two things. They, the, those, the painters that are trying to copy him will paint every clabbered on the side of the house. But if you really look at an Andrew Wyeth, he paints very few of them. He just gives you the, the suggestion that he's painted every one of them. But if yeah. you really look at them, they're just hinted. So that's one thing that I think people who are trying to copy him. The other thing is how dark he'll paint a foreground and get it to still read like a sunlit painting. So one of the very first things that I'm, probably the first thing I make my decision when I'm starting a painting is if it's a if it's a high keyed painting, your eye will the, or the viewer's eye will go immediately to the darker than areas, like that sagebrush. They and will the sunlit. Cliffs. I would have thought they'd go to the lighter. No, they go to the minority of of what's. Oh there. right, because it's a high key so painting. Right, right. The opposite is true with a. Uh, with a dark painting, if you have a low-key painting, your eye will go to the lighter elements within that painting right, first. Right. And so, I mean, you know, I wanted the house to be the subject matter here. So I've intentionally grayed the sky a little bit um, and maybe dropped it slight, slightly in value. But I've definitely darkened the foreground, probably a full value or a value and half in that, trying to enhance that sunlight on that not so white house because it was definitely in need of, of a paint job. But, right. Um, Which is what makes it interesting so subject. I'm, thinking I'm sorry. Which is what makes it an interesting subject. If it was a perfectly clean, well-kept house, it might not be this interesting. Although the ones of yeah. your house are very interesting. So it depends on who's painting it. Um, but then, so here's a question I have. So when you darken the foreground though, it still feels like the house is inside the space, like back behind the picture plane. Yeah. What do you do when you've darkened the foreground in order to make the foreground still be in front of the midground? I think in this case, I just simplified it. I didn't put any detail or anything uh, in it. So there's nothing for the eye to, to, there's nothing to call the eye to the foreground um, mm. or hopefully little. Um, Oh man! And so you move right past it to the higher contrast of the the lighter house with the darker windows. Right. Yeah, and then to your point about detail, because I had mentioned how it it's almost like you painted every clabbered, but but you're missing lines everywhere. But you but you painted this shadow edge of the of the edge trim on every edge, and that almost tells the entire story. Yeah. Of the clabbered, yeah, man, that's cool. Um, uh, okay, man, there's just too many I want to talk about. <laughs> Let's see, is this? Uh, here's one that's probably in Wyoming. Yeah, I think that was right up. Uh, I think that may have been in my right on the Montana or Wyoming Montana border. And that's a fairly small. That's not that small. Eighteen by twenty. Is this one a studio painting as well? Yeah. It is. 
Yeah. And it, you know, one thing that, that's really incredible is that they, uh, they really are loose and abstract. So I got to look at that again. So that, that, that doesn't, that doesn't look like it has all that detail. When you, when you look, when you zoom out, it's like you, it's like you can see inside the trees and into the bush, into the branches. And then when you look closely at it, it's just a bunch of marks. So in your studio, are you really stepping way back a lot to see? Stepping back and, you know, and, and really layering, texturing the work. Um, and, it, you know, that you mentioned that it was really abstract. That's probably the highest compliment you can give me because, you know, it, I guess people would call this my work representational for lack of a better title for it. But when I'm working on it, I think I'm almost in complete abstract qualities. Um, you know, light, dark value pattern throughout the canvas where I want to have contrast or um, lack of contrast in certain areas. Um, you know, different shapes of the snow patterns within this piece that we're looking at um, is, you know, far different than what was there in reality. Um, yeah. Or, you know, a lot of times I hear music um, or rhythms that, you know, would occur more in music than, than in painting. But I think of it, um, think of music when, I, when I'm trying to design these and when I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah they're clearly well designed. You're obviously thinking about that, you know, but I, I, I think about that's what you, how you described uh, Antonio Lopez Garcia's work. Now, when you see it in person, it's so abstract. But yeah. when you see it reduced down to a little tiny page, it's so realistic. And I'm getting the exact same thing from your work. I thought that, I'm going to say this, I, I say this not meaning literally, but it's almost yeah. like so detailed, like photorealism at this scale. Yeah. Not, none of your work looks like a photo. It's far, far better than any photo. But you get. I hope you understand my point. The level yeah. of detail that you see in a thumbnail, it's like, whoa, and then you blow it up and it's like, what? No way. There's, yeah. <laughs> it's totally abstract. I have to say that uh, I was glad that you mentioned your um, admiration and respect for Wayne Thiebaud because um, a couple of the portraits I've seen of your work with, particularly with, um, some of your um, group com uh, commission, or I'm assuming commission portraits. Yeah, of yeah. Families. I see a lot of Tebow influence in there. And I mean that in the highest form of confidence. No, there's no doubt. The the way I abstract the shadows and stuff, totally a Tebow, to Tebow influence. I loved what he would do with shadows in his paintings. And that, uh, that you know, vibrating line around the edge. Yeah. Which I've heard, I, I believe it's called an appellus line or a bed bug line. Oh, I've never heard um, those things. Yeah. Uh, Don Demers was telling me the story. And then I went and looked it up a little bit. And it was from a fourth century Greek named, uh, who was an artist in his studio. And a, another artist called, if I think I have this right. And and the, the artist wasn't there. So the visiting artist walked up to the canvas and put a line on on his canvas 
And his studio assistant said, you had a visitor and, you know, and the artist said, who was it? And he said, I, you know, I don't know. I don't remember name or God. And he walked into his studio and he said, oh, I know who it was. It was a Pellis. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly because there's nobody else that could put such a fine line right on that vibration. But it took me years for see, to see that outside. Hmm. And, and I see it. Um, it's, now I see it all the time. It's it's most easily seen, um, you know, in evening, um, where uh, you know you get that vibration against the landmass in the sky. You'll have that. A lot of times, it's a complementary color. Um, and you, but, so you apply that in your work as well. Yeah, Speaking of Wayne Tebow, <laughs> this is yeah those blue shadows, right? I loved. Love how he uses that. And if you if you clicked on this one and we could enlarge it, there there's a little orange vibration. Yep, right around the edge of each shadow. Um, so I think one of the easiest ones to see, Jeff. If we go back, there's a road one I think right above this one. Um, that if we click on that, you can see that uh, the that orange line against that dirt field right there. Um, and you see and that it, in nature. You actually see that. Really start to see it. It took me years to see it. And I never saw it when I was actually doing plein air painting. And it wasn't until I stopped painting outside and I just, I would sit and look and start taking notes that I first, that I first saw that, which was, you know, much later in my, much later in my career than it should have taken me to see it. But that's one to me, that's one of the advantages of just going out and observing in the field rather than painting in the field. I, I, I really think that I see more, um, I observe more just being out than when I was out trying to, to paint. So do you actually when, make it a point to have outings where you just look for stuff and take notes and that's most, it? Most of the time. Really? Uh, when I'm in the field, you know, I almost always have a sketchbook with me, it, though I do have, you know, gas receipts and, you know, I've had drawings, compositional drawings and thumbnails on the back of a, of a napkin or the side of a paper cup when I have forgot my sketchbook. But hmm. So this one, again, it's incredible lighting. I mean, it's it, again, one of those complex lighting situations that you really pulled off. Is, I'm assuming this one's in Maine as well. Yeah, this is looking in the town of uh, um, Rockport, looking down into Rockport Harbor. Yeah. And is this one also one that you took notes and then came back in the studio, I would assume? Yeah, and this one was just, you know, this is about three and a half or four miles from where, where the house is. And so... It, that was done all in the studio, but and I had photographic reference on that. But it, a lot of times I'd go back and just park there uh, at that time of day, and and, and wait. I just love your houses. I think that's my favorite um, favorite subject that you paint because you take such ordinary things and make them art. I mean, what a weird yeah. house. This is, this is, a, these are strange houses. These houses are known as there, there was a, a coal mine right in the northern Wyoming, southern Montana border, right on the Wyoming-Montana border. 
no longer in existence anymore. There are big coal mines there, but this was a smaller coal mine called Koi Coal. And these, there are a number of these houses that they moved from the mine when it closed into town. And a lot of them have been added on to, or they'll put a little porch on it and changes. But they're, they're square houses with this, uh, with this certain um, roof and they have, the, they have this look. And I was working on a series of paintings of Sheridan called, and titled the exhibition Hometown. They're all small format, you know, I think 10, 12 inches was the largest and a lot of them. And they were all done in the studio, uh, but I tried to paint them like I did plein air. And I, I was out one morning about five o'clock in the morning and came across this house. And I was aware of um, how Christmas lights came to represent the birth of Jesus. But to this day, for the life of me, I have no idea how eight foot inflatable plastic, you know, <laughs> represent. And so when I saw this house, the talking 1981 talking head song, letting the days go by just popped into my head, you know, with those great lyrics. This is not my beautiful wife. This yeah. is not my beautiful wife. How did we get here? And so I titled that. I, can't, I was so excited. I came right into the studio and started to block in a little composition you know, at 6.15 in the morning. And I, I finished the little, it's an eight and a half by 10 or something, 10 and a quarter um, panel. And I was so excited I had a, a panel made up that was the same proportion. And so I, I set the study aside and started to block this in. And about the time my wife came in, uh, she has an office in the front part of the studio. She came in and I had it, you know, started to block in and started, uh, you got the sense of it. And I showed her the study and she said, um, oh, you should put that in the Prita West exhibit in Oklahoma City, you know, which is typical cowboys and Indians. And I kind of laughed at her and thought, no, no, no way in hell I'm putting that in that exhibition. But over the months that I worked on this bigger piece, I thought, why not? This is this is as real, if not more, true Western. I mean, Sheridan, Wyoming is a Western town, and this everything about this is authentic. And so, I did put it in the show, and uh, it it won it won an award, and it was fun to kind of step back because you get people. Uh, some people came up and loved it, and then you get people that come in and they just kind of scratch their head and lift their cowboy hat and say, "What's this doing in the show?" Um, you know, so that, it was kind of fun. yeah, but and that's an interesting. Said, Whoops, I don't want to lose back. it. That's an interesting topic in and of itself. It's it's sometimes frustrating for me. When uh, and I get it, I, you know, my own mother's this way. My, I mean, like when when uh, clients and or collectors are more interested in subject matter than composition and emotion and mood. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah. So I'm not surprised that a lot of people scratch their head because it's not a cowboy on a horse, right? But to well, me, think, go ahead. You think of the window of the time, you know, in the history of of the Rocky Mountain West, um, the, that phase of cowboy on a horse is just a, you know, it's a tiny little window. It is. Or, or, 
and it doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there are still ranches out here, but you know, most of them are on four wheelers or, or side by sides. And a couple of them still ride horses every now and then, but I don't know of any working ranch where they're solely on horseback. Yeah, um, that would be interesting because there's a lot. I mean, Western art is blowing up right now, and most of it is horses and cowboys and this nostalgic painting, these nostalgic paintings of the past. It'd be interesting to see an artist pop up that actually has people on quads and driving their <laughs> tractors and, you know, the tools that they are pickup trucks, the tools that they're actually using. It'd be interesting to see if someone could make a career out of that. So one of the, the I knew the conscious when I was working on this one that, um, you know, again, we've talked about the limitations of pigment compared to the limitations or the spectrum of light. Um, the, our range of pigment is, you know, a fraction of what the, the spectrum of light is. So I knew I had to keep uh, everything grayed down. I couldn't have any bright color if I wanted to have room or have range to to try to paint that the illumination or feeling of illumination of those those colored lights. And so everything, you know, from the snow to the color of the house to the, the snowman, even the trees, um, I, I couldn't have any bright color anywhere. Um, to hopefully create a stage that would allow those lights to, to appear luminous. So how do you achieve that? Um, my assumption is that you paint the whole painting first and then put the lights on after, correct? They were, um, I think I had a corner of it right above that snowman that I had, and I indicated a couple, you know, lights that uh, to see if I could have enough range of how dark I needed to go. And then it, it just kind of worked on and, and built out from there. But do you, when you're painting the house, you know, without the lights in the beginning, do you literally take colors off your palette? I mean, uh, or are you just mixing grays? I, on this one, I think I did, a, I did a combination of both. I took, I took all, uh, when I minus the lights, I took all the, all the cadmiums and, and, you know, kind of high chroma colors off my palette. Mm. Um, and then, and I use a couple to mix grays also. Um, so what was a palette you might've used for this? I obviously might not remember, but if you were I to do it remember. again, um, you know, I think I had a, I think I had a cobalt, uh, blue on there. I think this is one where, um, I used uh, cobalt violet with, you know, a lot of, uh, earth colors or, you know, terra vert, um, mm. None of the colors on here, my, uh, minus the outside the lights, um, were high chroma colors. Okay. Huh. But you're not using black then? Um, I use, you know, I have black. Yeah. I actually have three blacks on my palette. Really? Um, you know, I have ivory black, I have uh, Mars black, and I have, what was the other one um, black, black, black. No um, kidding, three blacks. Uh, and because they're they're you know uh, mar or, or ivory black is a um, fairly um, warmish neutral co compared to lamp black, which is really a cold blue black. Hmm. Um, and so you know I'll use I think it. it 
I think the difference, you know, people say, I don't have black on my palette um, because I think they'll get lazy and they think of it as a value instead of a color. And blacks um, can make some of the most beautiful grays. Um, Do you make charts with your blacks too? Yeah. Let me just see if I have it, if I can grab one. Hold on. Again, I don't know if it's uh, bright enough if we can see, but this is an ivory black. Uh, okay. Chart, which you. Yeah, yeah, and, that one's. You can definitely you know, see something. Maybe if I turn it sideways, well, really can't see that. But you get some beautiful grays and nuances, and then this is a lamp black, which you can see is you know considerably cooler. Hmm. And again, they don't, uh, you can't see that. You can subtle. see a difference though, big time. That's yeah. a much bluer. Yeah, bluer this sheet. one's much cooler than lamp black. Or I'm sorry, than ivory black. That, that second one was the lamp black one. Hmm. So. Yeah, and how many blacks will you use in one painting? Or do you just oh, pick I, one? You no, know, sometimes I'll play, you know, the, the cool of the lamp black against the warm of a of an ivory black on the but I I usually use the blacks um on the lighter spectrum than on the than on a darker. Um I think you can mix a more interesting dark than than a, just a black. Mm. Um, oh, that's an that's a good piece of advice right there. Yeah, because yeah, I think that's why a lot of artists avoid black because black seems to kill the shadows a little bit. Yeah, and I think if you if you if you think of black as a value, you should probably stay away from using it. But if you think of it as a, as a you know, I use black more in my lighter and my higher uh, keys. Mm -hmm. to do in the in the darker ones. Oh, that's great! And, that's great advice. They have a you know a, a a mixed black or a mixed dark. I think it has much more life than than just black out of the tube. Oh man! Okay, so tell me about this one. This is part of that hometown series that I did, um, which I was asked by our our local uh, art guild if I would like to have a, a show and. Um, I kind of felt obligated to do it, but I wasn't, um, start off, I wasn't all that excited about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't quite sure what I did, but we had recently had come back from Maine and we were in, I, I have this great historic studio in downtown Maine. And so I thought, you know, I'm intrigued by some of the architecture in, in, in around Sheridan and, so I told him I thought I could have 12 to 15 paintings in the was a year and a half away that we scheduled it. And I ended up with 35 of them. Wow. Uh, and they were just, uh, I would get up and I'd walk around from the studio. I'd get up early in the morning and drive around town. I was in neighborhoods that I hadn't been in since I was, you know, nine or 10 years old uh, playing baseball. But um you can see that uh, uh, Pellis line uh, right at the edge of the shadow. I know, I was gonna point that out. Yeah, right here. But, yep, um, and, and I, it does, it really livens up a shadow. <clears throat> or at least, and you it, know. It, it, when you're aware of it and you start to look for it, I mean, you, you really see it all the time. Um, hmm, yeah. 
Yeah, and these blues in the snow, violets, it's more violet, I guess, than blue. Just so chromatic. Imagine when painting something like this, if you're not experienced, you'd almost be like, no, it can't be. Can't be that, but <laughs> it can't be that purple. Yeah, it's incredible. And then a lot of times, again, this is where some of the color charts come in handy because you have that warmth of that, you know, reflected light on on that white or slightly off-white building. And then, it, you know, I can glance down at a couple of my cooler charts and say, you know, which, which of these, you know, blue-violet, gray-violet, you know, bluish-gray, um, works best with this before and so i have an idea before i even paint it what the color combinations may be i'd like to see one of these sketches with the notes on them what they look like do you have any of those laying around this is you know a, a typical thumbnail that, okay you know i might do in the field uh, okay that was one on location. This is one uh, that has the look at that the markings and the uh, fallout. So, you know, I'll write things like warm cerulean, greenish blue sky, um, warm white, yellow white, brightest snow. Um, it's cooler than but neutral gray, slightly darker than the hillside, and the fingers of the snow on there. Um, pinkish orange, warm hillside, play patterns within the hill. And then, you know, some of them, this is a, I think there's a one on that selected pages of called the yard feeding time. And that's, you know, so this might be the very first inspirational. Um, it's just trying to get thoughts down of, of movement of sheep. That, so that's the thumbnail for this finished piece here. Wow. Do you have notes for that one? I don't. It, uh, I think I had some notes written in a in a different sketchbook. Oh, okay. Maybe not my color call out notes. Right, um, right. But my thoughts on it. Of and a lot of times I'll I'll try to uh, I'll write things that say you know subtle temperature shifts in the foreground or um, to to create the. Uh, Dave, I ended up doing a number of gesture drawings with the, the sheep um, that are in my flat file. Uh, if we take a, another break, that I don't know how long you want me babbling on, but- um, <laughs> This is great. And then what I, I actually ended up doing is scaled them down on our printer mm -hmm. and I out and moved them around on the, I just uh, would tape them to the, to the panel until I had them in a kind of a grouping. Oh, that that's moment. great. Man. I had the, in the foreground, you know, more than blocked in, but it wasn't finished. And then I decided to add the sheep in. Well, I knew I was going to add the sheep in from the beginning, but that's the way I did it, which, you know, for me to, uh, to try to draw one in proportion, and not have it be in the right spot and, and paint it out and try to move it a quarter inch or, you know. Oh yeah, total eight, waste of time. It's a waste of time. And, yeah. you know, I've done the drawings and used some of, uh, you know, the technology that we have to, I just reduced them down to the right scale and then 
once I had them all in, and then I, then I, you know, threw them in. Oh, a lot of artists camp. do that in Photoshop now. You haven't tried that? Yeah. No, I've had a couple friends come by and show me that, you know, they're, they're really painting in Photoshop. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to be interviewing David Dibble in a couple of weeks and that's his, that's his thing. Do you know David Dibble's work? Yeah. He is one of the nicest guys in the yeah, business. He's almost too nice. It's like, how can yeah, you be so is. nice? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what he's able to do in that Photoshop is, is mind boggling. I know. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, I'm looking forward to that one. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm not much of a Photoshop guy. I mean, I use it occasionally, but so I'm looking forward to learning a little more about that too. But I have a question for you about lighting again. So when I was looking at these, this painting, and I wish I could put them next to each other. So the audience is going to have to remember it. But this is so bright. It's almost like walking outside of a dark house on, a, on an August or July day. You know, that feeling like you can't even open your eyes. And you've really yeah. captured that feeling. And then by contrast, there's this painting where it's clearly sunny because you have hard shadow edges, but it's this subdued sort of moody light quality. So tell me a little bit about that, about your thought process. Like how do you move or why, why did you choose to go really bright, sunny here? And then another painting that's obviously sunny, but it's subdued and moody. Tell me a little bit about your creative process there. But if we go back to that first one, um, we were, I was part of an exhibition a number of years ago called Sea to Shining Sea. Yeah. And traveled out to the Hagen Museum uh, in yeah, California. And they, over the weekend, they hosted us at this wonderful winery and they had this, um, this white barn that they used, uh, I think, to store a lot of the, the barrels in. And I was just, I was fascinated by all the different nuances of healing paint and the layers of uh, of the whites on this barn. And this is one where I, I did a, a little on-the-spot piece, and it was six by eight or eight by seven, something like that very quickly late in the afternoon and brought it back in the studio. And, and this is a piece that um, you know, my whole thing was how many whites can I, how many non-whites can I paint to make this white on the side of the barn? Um, there's vertical barn and then that little wind, that little doorway in the middle of it's kind of sloped back. So it's picking up a little cooler white. And then to you know play the, the abstract shadow. So I wanted to really simplify everything else, the barn and the cropping and everything. And it, I struggled with this piece for a long time because in reality there was a tree on the left side of the barn, and it, you know it's kind of a big. I can't remember what tree it was, but a you know, full leaf, you know, big dominant shape, and I had it in my study. So, you know, I actually had it in the painting for a long time and I thought, that's ah, not working right. So I thought, well, I'll move it over to the right side of the painting where it's not quite centered and maybe that would, you know, offset it a little more. And then literally after, you know, spending you know, four or five, six days painting the tree on the left and then painting it again on the right, I started to ask myself, what's that, what's that tree say about, you know, the 
trying to paint the whites of the barn and it dawned on me like it's not saying anything so the minute i took it out and painted it out i thought it was the painting was a little stronger mm-hmm. and then we were raising chickens we had chickens all the time we were in maine and i so I'd, about six months into this painting i thought i wonder if i can paint my giant white chickens and a couple of the Bor- buff orpingtons um if I could still have range to paint a white chicken in there and still make the barn look white. So again, it, a lot of it's that, that abstract thought that or process that I, I see as total abstraction, even though it's somewhat representational. Hmm. So this was, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of scumbling, sanding. Um, I actually take a hard lead pencil and, and draw some of the, the vertical boards in this and then let it dry and paint over that. And there, so there are layers and layers of, of paint on that, um, as well as the foreground. And it's not small, it's 28 by 28. That's pretty good yeah. size painting. Yeah, that. So I think a lot. So, and then, you know, so I just go out and I do drawings of my chickens as they walk around the yard um, hmm. and then try to group them and, and again put them in it where they're. You know, I think of them as almost notes of music going across where I'm, I pay more attention or I'm a, aware of the negative spaces in between the chickens and grouping the chickens and um, where hopefully it feels natural. But it does. It's yeah. Static or anything. It does. And it feels we, really natural. We go to that second one you mentioned, um, which is titled November Sun. Um, which I, I just had this piece. It was one of the uh, paintings I had, one of the three paintings I had at the Maxwell Alexander uh, 10th year anniversary exhibition last month in, in LA. Um, so this is in central, kind of south central Wyoming. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to get off the highways and even the secondary roads and, and drive a lot of these back dirt roads through the, the Western states, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, yeah, Arizona, Nevada. Uh, I have a big gazetteer maps for, for all the states. And I was coming by this barn um, and I just love, I love the shape of the barn it, first off and that you know, white clabbered with that cement foundation. And then the, the key, and again, there are a whole bunch of big cottonwood trees behind this barn that oh there were really yeah i kind of learned from my first lesson of doing the the giant white barn um that all right those trees aren't necessary so i i didn't even from the very beginning i didn't put them in and i wanted a i wanted to have that feeling of uh kind of that late fall early winter november where the sun's still when you get a good sunny day it still has some warmth in it mm-hmm. and so I tried to, um, you know, this was one that I, I intentionally, I think that um, the dormer on the on the barn in reality was at a, um, it was tin also, and it was rusted. Um, and I wanted to take, or it may have even been wooden, um, but I wanted to make that white to relate it more to the barn. But the part that I, changed and I think changed the feeling of this is I wanted a really kind of muted, warm, neutral sky, not a bright blue sky. 
to try to enhance that warmth of that low, um, you know, winter sun or late mm. autumn sun. It's kind of the uh, end of October, beginning of November. Um, so and, is that all it is that makes it feel less bright? And to try to pull all the values, you know, I try to keep the values really close together. It, yeah. Not, it, where the first one we showed had much more contrast between the shadow. Uh, okay. The sky was, was probably painted darker than it was in reality and a much more intense uh, blue than this one. Mm -hmm. And when this one kind of almost a blanket of, of warmth of kind of this muted uh, warm. And then this was a uh, old horse of mine that uh, I had my daughter uh, hold for me and I did a couple drawings of it in, and then again, try to paint a, a, a white, or in this case, a gray horse against this this white barn. Um, so, so you know, and, and from painting, it, which you know, when you're painting white, whether it's snow or the side of a, a, a house or a barn like this, it's it's really because white is so reflective. It's every color but white. Right. Um, I think there's a lick of pure white in any of this. Um, so, and then I moved the, the corrals and everything and kind of simplified oops. it. Uh, so how does it, um, so how did you come to decide that you wanted it that way? I mean, when you see something the way it is, what's, I just want to know a little more about your creative process. How do you go from painting what you see to changing it to be muted and bringing the values together? I mean, was there... A particular mood you were after was it more of uh like uh, an abstract decision just a color decision and in this particular case it was the um you know it, the thing that stood out about me as i was coming back i was actually returning from a trip to jackson hole and it was just one of those days you know that you know winter is right around the corner and this might be the last day where that's you know, sun, you feel that warmth. And so that was kind of the whole inspiration of that. Okay. There were, there were two or three horses in this, in this uh, barnyard. Um, one was a bay and I think they had a, a dark gray or a black horse. Um, and I can't remember the other one. They may have been a sorrow or another bay. Um, so the horse idea came from, there were horses there, but I thought, again, I didn't want to put a, a really dark horse against that white because then it changes that that makes it too contrast. So when I got home, this was a um, my horse named Dollar before I I sold him. Wow. Um, and so uh, I think I had it fairly early on. I knew that I was if I if I was going to put a horse on, I knew it was going to be this my horse, this gray horse against that, that white barn. And then it, trying to again simplify areas and, and bring the values of that foreground and um, obviously they there's a pathway that's going through that diagonally through that barnyard that is anybody who's around barnyard you you have a, a path and animals are you know hugely uh, animals of, of habit and they'll go they'll walk the same route back and forth so it changes Mm -hmm. I wanted to put that in, but I didn't want it to contrast. I also like kind of a, the lighter part of the hard pack uh, dirt. I thought it would relate to the to the barn a little bit, but 
so I didn't want to have a lot going on in the in the foreground, um, but I wanted to have some to to where you get a sense that that it's not a manicured, you know, the working barnyard. And then again, the um, the spacing of the fence post, and particularly a, this one, I think is cropped a tiny bit. There's a there's a little space on that far right side between that leaning telephone uh, or utility pole and the edge of the canvas. So this one's been cropped, mm. you know, quarter. So from the reality of the painting. Um, hmm. And then a lot of times if we, if we could blow this up, uh, the tin roof on this barn, um, I put fairly heavy white pigment, uh, slightly tinted white pigment. And then I, I literally took a comb uh, down through it wow. and created the, the thing and then let that dry. I sand in some areas and then I can uh, either put a, you know, scumble some, some of the rust color and some of the, the variations of, of the subtle tonality of that, of that reflected tin um, over that, but there's, there's actually a, a ribbing effect in the, in the paint. Yeah. You can uh, see it. At least I can. Yeah. So that must be where some of that battle you referred to earlier comes from, because you don't really know what you're going to get. It seems like you're doing a lot of experimentation with these textures. And, and I did a, a series, um, it's probably been about 10 years ago now where in our, in my studio in Maine, I have a wood stove and, you know, cut all of our own firewood and everything. And as it dries, the bark a lot of times will shrink and come off. Mm -hmm. And the hardwoods in, in Maine, um, you know, the difference between white oak and red oak and cherry and beech and birch, um, it's the, you know, I think far too often one of the things is, is, as visual painters, um, one of the difficulties, at least for me, is to to paint what you to really look and and with fresh eyes, and not look to what we think we know. Um, you know, we all have a tendency to think sky is blue, grass is green, and you know, in this case, tree trunks are brown. And but if you ever really look at a tree trunk, it's just about every color but brown. Um, hmm. And so I had a, just as an experiment, and I always try to have one or at least one thing going on of just purely experimentational in the studio. Um, and so I decided that I would try to paint the, I wanted to do one tree bark um, of a, a red oak as realistically as I possibly could. Do and you so have I, that here? I went out. I don't think it's on this. Oh, okay. I think it used to be, but it's not on this, uh, on my, uh, this selected work. Okay. It's in my, uh, growth rings we'll, catalog. We'll put, uh, we'll put this up as a backdrop. <laughs> so I did it just as a portrait painter would site size in my studio. I had it sitting right next to it, right next to the easel. I, I made my panel the width and height of the, of the, a piece of, uh, I actually went out and cut a tree and brought it in when it was fresh. And I thought, I'm going to try to do anything I can think of to, to capture the, the depth and the, the nuances and textures. So it was the first time where I really 
started to just manipulate the paint itself. I was using steel wool, wire brushes, mason's trowels, um, soft uh, vine charcoal into wet char into wet paint. And I'd let it dry mm. and then brush off the residue. I, I used a lot of sandpaper on it was dry. And the more realistic I tried to paint it, the more abstract it became. And I think Lucy and Freud has a saying that's similar to that um, right along those lines, um, that the, the more realistic something is, the more abstract, ironically, the more abstract it becomes. In, or uh, I used to, I have it in my studio in Maine that the more real I try to paint it, the more abstract it becomes, and ironically, the more real. Mm. Um, which is exactly the way it felt. And so I've, that was just a, a total e experimentation on my part. I ended up doing five of them uh, that uh, um, one uh, different species. And I let the width of the canvas be, be determined by the width of the tree. But it, that really changed how um, and I incorporate a lot of that uh, technique of manipulating the paint itself on kind of normal um, and more traditional or normal paintings where I'm trying to, I, I hope that they look one way and you mentioned it online, but if you see one of my paintings from across the room, it may look fairly detailed or representational, but if you get up close from, you know, a foot or six inches away, what you thought you were looking at hopefully becomes something completely different. Um, and it's that layered paint and, and manipulated pigment and, and a different texture. And, and you know, I, at times I think I'm, I'm being pretty bold and then it all go to an exhibit and see one of George Carlson's work. And then I feel so weak and. <laughs> yeah. Well, he might think the same thing about your, I mean, you're, yeah. you're truly a, a master. You know, what you said reminds me of something I learned from another artist. He said that you're, I don't remember who it was years ago, but someone said to me once that your painting should look good from three inches away, three feet away and 30 feet away. Not the same, but good. You know, I don't know. And I think, You've probably seen paintings as I have where it's like, it looks amazing from three feet away or six feet away, but then you get up close and it's not interesting. Yeah. You know, or vice versa. Right. Um, yeah. And that's one thing that I'm really, I've noticed about your work is that it's just raw and gritty and abstract from up close and like you can reach out and touch it when you step back, or at least when I look at it smaller. So, Tell me about this one. Is this one of those graphite studies? This is a graphite study. This is, a, you know, it's called an interior pine. And, you know, being in Maine, white pine, are they're, they're such a fabulous tree. And they have such an amazing way of growing. Um, they have a, a main leader that grows. And then every year they send out usually five branches in a star pattern. Um, and so on a young white pine tree, you can easily count the growth rings by just growing, by counting the branches that stem out. Sometimes there are four, I've seen as many as seven branches come out, but they never, they always come out at the same spot 
in the in the trunk and then it, but it's you know they're soft pines of soft wood they have these long needles um, that are in clusters which hold that heavy new england snow so a lot of times the leader will break off and then they'll have the dominant branch will come and take over that leader and it gives them this wonderful graceful rhythm and when they're out in the field you'll see it and andrew wyatt could paint a white pine tree that i mean they're just exquisitely beautiful mm -hmm. because he understood how they grow this one has never been uh or for a long time has never been out in the open so it continues to grow and search for for light and the the lower branches get cut off and they die and then they create these wonderful things. So this is about 15 feet off of our property line on a, our neighboring. And I started it in the field. Um, I took the panel out and it's fairly, I think it's about 52 54 inches. 54 inches. It's huge um, for a drawing. And again, and, and tried to get the, loosely uh, get the spacing in between the branches. A lot of times when I'm drawing, particularly when I'm drawing from life, I'm drawing, um, instead of drawing the branches, I'm drawing the space in between the branches. And then most of this was done in the studio. Um, but it, again, I would, uh, I had some photographic reference, but I'd go outside and just and stand and kind of have a communication with this. I was just, I love this the structure of it. How yeah. in the world? How long did this take you? Months and months. Yeah, I had this. It was in my studio for probably uh, years. I think, and maybe not quite, but you know, a good twenty months. Um, I would. I didn't work on it in the in the uh, summertime because the other deciduous trees would were leafed out and it and it obscured a lot of the. So I could only work on it in the in the fall once the leaves came off, and then in the in the winter time. Even um, though you had photo reference, even though I did, well, I like to go out and and be able to, you know, to to see it. Even though I'm not right. working in the field, I can go out and and study it. So and, if you have a question, and, you're like, I don't know what this value is. I you go back out there and look at it. Yeah, come or back I don't in. know. How, you know, a lot of times if you're taking a photograph. You don't know where that branch is, how that branch is turning or where it's going. Um, right. The photograph will show you that it's in front of this other branch, but you really don't know, you know, what that relationship is. Is it, is it six inches behind or is it touching it? And that will, that all comes into effect of how, you know, the relationship within it. And so, so you're not copying this photograph. You're saying that branch, I went out there, I studied it. That branch is six feet behind the one in front of it. So I've got to modify the values and the textures and the detail accordingly. Yeah. And then you get to a point and then you'll say, all right, I, here's a, here's a spot that I want to enhance the value of it. I'm going to make it a little darker than it may have been in reality for the sake of the drawing. Yeah. Um, like you've got a cluster of dark on the top quarter, which is just beautiful. And, and I, I'm assuming you did that on purpose. And yeah, then well, you're you're kind of looking up underneath them. You're seeing that, you know, the, the dark, the bottom side of that. Um, yeah. And then get down to, you know, down to the front and the lower branches, you're looking, they're still above my eye level, but they're a lot closer. You're looking more at the middle of them. I um, love how you simplified the background. 
very again very abstract it almost looks like you stumped in some tone and then just suggested a few trees i think a lot of the background was you know i'll use liquid graphite you know and just brush it on oh really let it dry and then uh take a kneaded eraser and a, a hard uh you know a 6H or uh, a 5, 6, 7H pencil and, and add a little texture in it without having to worry about the um, design or, you know, the competition of a, of a value competing with the main tree. So what kind of paper are you using that can hold up to liquid graphite? This one is, uh, I think, just a standard watercolor paper that I uh, mount With on a tooth? A it's good. Yeah, it's a... Uh, a cold press you're drawn on cold press so if i looked at this in real life then it wouldn't be nearly this refined looking you're gonna it's gonna be pretty pretty rough yeah it's got a um i think it's a uh arches you know it's a 380 weight okay. wow that's that, not it just looks like it could be bristol because it's so detailed reduced right yeah but it, but you're working on a rough paper so it's probably a lot more gritty and yeah. rough looking yeah and a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the texture of the of the of the bark is um you know just kind of a uh, soft graphite or charcoal you know kind of brushed on and then enhanced and and modulated with the with the graphite pencil i wish yeah. i could see the original i bet it looks even more incredible huh well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I, I could talk to you for hours. We should do this again. I hope you'd be willing to do it again because... Well, Utah is one of my favorite places. And I know there's that, that, that fabulous uh, Maynard Dixon show that recently opened up at the uh, uh, Brigham Young University. It did? Yeah. I didn't just, know that. I got to go check it out. Last, yeah. Last month, I want to say like the you know 10th of October or something. I think it's up for over a year. Are you going to come down to, to Utah to see it? Okay. Um, well, call me when you do, because, uh, I live, I live in right in Salt Lake city. So you'll have to drive through Salt Lake. Well, no, if you're coming from Wyoming, I guess you don't have to, but either way, it'd be good to see you in person, meet you in person. Well, I'd, I'd love to meet you. And I want to say before we get off, you had a, uh, a series of, I'm assuming they're siblings. Of, I think there were four which I just thought was so brilliant. It's where I really saw the Wayne Tebow influence. You put the youngest one on a ladder. Oh, yeah. Put her on the biggest canvas. And then they, each one where the oldest sibling had the smallest canvas. But yeah. they, all the were different sizes. Yeah. And that would have a brilliant way to do that. Oh, thanks. So it's such a creative way. And I thought, what a lucky uh family to have those portraits well thanks yeah they liked it it will i often go into people's homes and look at where the where the thing is going to be hanging that's one of the nice things about a commission yeah because i'll use the architecture to design the painting sometimes and not always but sometimes in this case they had this mid-century modern house and they said they were going to hang it right above a staircase that went down into the basement yeah. And so the, the painting actually goes opposite the staircase. So the staircase goes down, the painting goes up. So it kind of accents that, that piece of architecture. That was fun painting to do. That's old. They're, they're all married now. Makes me feel like an old <laughs> fart. <laughs> it's, hard to, 
Where does the time go? I know, man. Seriously. Well, I want to ask you one more question before we go, because you've obviously been a really successful painter. Is there any um, advice that you would give an aspiring young artist that wants to follow in your footsteps? Uh, oh, there's, uh, oh, what a great question. Um, again, I think probably one of the most important things that I would consider is to, to be true your, to yourself, be true to your interest. Um, never take your, take what you do seriously, but never take yourself too seriously. Um, never, ever, ever chase a market, um, and we all have to, uh, you know, we have to have enough uh, to to continue to, to buy paint and stuff. But that doesn't really take that much. A tube of paint and a brush, they go a long way. And to, to paint your interests, and if you do that honestly, I, I have found that there is always an audience there. Um, if you try to chase the market, the market's changing all the time you'll never catch it and you'll always be behind and you'll never know who you are mm -hmm. and study. I think, uh, you know, there, there, this is a, uh, wonderful profession we have. It, that doesn't mean it's easy, but I've never, uh, I'm always a little flabbergasted by egos. Um, and it's, an, it's an, it's an interesting problem. It's a conundrum because if you've ever been to really any museum, let alone the great museums of the world of the, the Metropolitan or the Tate and the Prado, and you, you know, you look at what Rembrandt did in the, in the early 1600s and you think we haven't improved at all. Why the hell, why do we even continue? So it's an, it's an egotistical thing that we do. Um, but it, I'm always amazed at people who have big egos because I think it, it's to me it's a lack of depth and a lack of sight. I mean, how anybody can stand in front of a Rembrandt or a Bouguereau or John Singer Sargent or Joaquin, Joaquin Saroya or any of them, Antonio Lopez Garcia and Andrew Wyeth. I mean, we could you know we could be here for months just naming artists, but any of the great artists, how you can stand in front of some of their work and then have a, an ego and think you're the cat's meow is just leaves me baffled. But yeah, that's a good, good point. Be true to yourself is probably the the best advice I could give somebody starting. Yeah. And be honest. Know your subject matter. I'm, I'm always surprised that when I'm teaching the number of people who you know, claim to be landscape painters, but they can't tell you the difference between a, a beech tree and a and a pine tree. Um, and for me, I you know, the more you understand your subject matter, um, the more interesting your subject matter becomes, and then the more you want to, the more you want to convey it, where uh, mm. you, you know, kind of honor that subject matter. Hmm. Yeah, that's really good advice. And on that ego thing, you know, I don't know if you've experienced this, but <clears throat> I'd say as I've gotten older and I've been painting 20 years now, not as long as you have, but, um, and during that 20 years, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of artists. And of course, through this podcast, meet a lot of artists. And what I've noticed is the really, really good artists have the smaller egos. 
You know, it's the better they are, the smaller their ego. And and I'm, I'm, what I'm putting together is that a big ego makes for a poor student. Um, and that's why all these great artists have small egos because their their lack of ego makes them a sponge. They just get better and better and better. That's well, just I my theory. I'm, yeah, no, I think you're I think you're exactly right. The other thing I certainly recommend is continue to experiment. Just yeah. allow yourself time and all of the you know deadlines and the pressures and stuff. Allow yourself time to just do something for the freedom of trying something new all the time because you'll you you never know what's gonna work. Um yeah. You know, what's going to change the way you put paint on a canvas or, uh, you know, I remember I, I saw Kwong Ho do a demonstration one time and, you know, he had this fabulous painting going and he took out his hotel key, you know, the little credit card type key and started to use it as a squeegee. He's a and magician. Thought, Who thinks of that? <laughs> well, a you kind of do. You're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, Kwong Ho, the fastest painter in the West, is what his wife called yeah. him. Yeah. So, but somewhat, I mean, to see and and to remain curious and, you know, go look at great, you know, you I think you look at great, great, great art, not just painting, but go look at the great art, mm-hmm. the masterpieces of the world, because they, um, you know, I think far too often we think of history as behind us and that's all in the past um i think if we look at it as those are they're leading us they're ahead of us they came before us and we're behind them looking forward we get it gives us Mm -hmm. a different um, sense of of proportion perspective and and you know and then you almost feel like i have an obligation to Try to become the very best I can be. Um, and that's, you know, you can only do that one way of being honest by yourself and, and staying curious and, and being a student. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, Tim, it's been a huge honor to talk to you. Thanks a ton for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come do this podcast with me. Uh, it's been an honor to be on this podcast. Yeah, and thank you for doing this podcast. Oh, man, it's well, my pleasure. The only disadvantage I see is that it might take away too much of your painting time and you should. Yeah, it does. It takes a, it takes a bit, but it's like, it's like I've said to other artists, it's like going back to school. So I think of it as my few hours of education every week. It's great. Thanks for tuning in to the undraped artist podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could leave a comment or review that really helps the channel, please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at the undrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.